Spider-Man, Spider-Man Does whatever a spider can Spins a web any size Catches speed just like flies Hey there Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff. We're a little later than usual, but only a couple days off. Yeah. And we are here to talk about this week, The Amazing Spider-Man 2, which is one of the worst movies I have ever seen. Do you concur, Sean? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. Bef- yes. We were going to hold off, because if we start talking about it now, we'll never stop. Right, yeah. We've got other stuff to get to. We're going to talk a little bit of news, a little bit of stuff. We're going to get to our review of the movie later on. Yeah. As always, there's going to be spoilers. Gwen dies. <laughs> I, want, <laughs> I want to disincentivize anyone I can from seeing this movie. Yeah. So yes, Gwen dies. Electro has no part in the movie. Um, <laughs> it's, fucking, it's fucking true. Uh, Peter Parker is the one true Spider-Man because his father gave him a weird blood yeah. transfusion or something. Yeah. So yeah, there are all the spoilers for the movie. Now you don't need to see it. You can just listen to us. We'll fill you in. Yeah. And um, Rhino's only in it for like two minutes. Yes. So. Are maybe some of the best two minutes of the whole film. Well, probably, yes. It's just Paul Giamatti screaming in a ridiculous Russian accent. Without ever getting a close-up. Yeah, like it doesn't even seem like it's him. Alright, so Amazing Spider-Man 2, giant piece of shit. We'll break it apart later on. And uh, first off, let's talk about some other stuff. Yeah. Over on the website, www.jonathanlack.com. Lots of good stuff going up, I feel like. Uh, as always, weekly Mad Men reviews because of AMC's weird scheduling. There have only been five episodes, and there's only two left huh. <laughs> this whole year. Oh, so, right, yeah, because they're doing the split season thing. It's so stupid. Yeah. And it really doesn't work with Mad Men. Like, these have been five very good episodes of Mad Men, but they feel like the first five out of 13. So it's like, we've only got two left. It doesn't feel like anything's really... Yeah. Which it doesn't have to. That's not what the show is, but it's just, it's a weird thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so oh well They've been good Wait, is, this, is this the last season of Mad Men? Yes but it yeah. extends to next year Yeah yeah so. yeah But like it's the yeah. yeah They're following the, the Breaking Bad model Only with fewer episodes I can finally start watching that show soon Yes <laughs> It's been a long All time Alright Yeah no Mad Men's good and, and I got my reviews up They're more like analysis pieces So they go into all the stuff of the episode Make sure you've watched them They're obviously full of spoilers So that's that um, The Essay Day series is still going strong This podcast is going up on Tuesday On Wednesday we've got another one coming up um, it's going to be talking about one of the movies in that piece is Melancholia by Lars von Trier. Um, so that's a good, good piece, uh, good stuff over there. And last week's essay day piece might be of interest to readers because it, one of the movies discussed there was Under the Skin, the Jonathan Glazer, Scarlett Johansson film that recently came out in theaters and uh, I think is the best film of the year. It's fantastic. Uh, but also discussed in that piece is the video game Proteus, which was on my top ten video games of the year last year. Very good so, game. Yes. So that's all in that piece. And uh, then what, what other recent stuff have we had up? I This weekend I saw a couple new movies, but the one I chose to write about was the 1954 Godzilla by Ishiro Honda. It's playing at the Denver Film Center this week, which is awesome. You should go see it. It's basically, they've just got the Criterion Blu-ray, I think, or mm-hmm. the Master. Yeah. It's even the same subtitles and everything. <laughs> but you can see it on the big screen, yeah. which is cool. That movie's got really cool cinematography and stuff. And it's a great movie, and I... I never kind of remember how good it is until I watch it. Yeah, it is. I kind of feel that way too. That every time I rewatch it, I'm like, yeah, I remember this movie being pretty good, but like not the greatest movie ever. And then I watch it, I'm like, this is one of the fucking best movies I've ever seen. It is. It is. It really is. And and so my review just kind of goes. It's it's another analysis kind of piece. Um, it does spoil the movie. So if you didn't know, you know, Godzilla <laughs> dies at the yeah. end. 
<laughs> that's spoiled for you, I guess. Yeah. It's a 60-year-old movie. That's, you know, that's off. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's well outside the boundaries. Yes. All right. So anyway, that stuff is all up on the site. Uh, one thing I didn't just have the time to write about, and I really didn't think I had enough to say about this movie to do a full review, but I also saw the new comedy this weekend, Neighbors. Uh, Nicholas Stoller movie stars Seth Rogen, Rose Byrne, Zac Efron, who I will never make fun of again because he's awesome in this movie and really funny. Mm. So that's good. Um, it's a really, really great comedy. I've, I've liked Nicholas Stoller's other films, and he even wrote uh, or co-wrote the recent Muppet movies. So he's a really talented guy. It's a really, really great comedy. It's a lot of fun. Definitely, you know, try to see it with an audience. It's it's a blast. And uh, it made fifty one million and totally just kicked the ass of Amazing Spider Man two this weekend. Yeah. So if you're going to, if you really just kind of want to see a movie with some people. Don't go see Amazing Spider-Man 2. Go no. see that. Yeah. Or yeah. anything else. Just yeah. anything. Yeah. Don't give money to Sony for their terrible Spider-Man movie. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. yeah. Don't do that. Yeah. Neighbors is good, though. No guilt about that. I've been playing some games recently. Sean, I yes. picked up Hearthstone. Yes. Which you've been talking I've, about. Yeah, I've, I've been continually playing Hearthstone because it's a nice game to just like play a couple oh, yeah. rounds every day. Yeah. Well, I like that it's a good game that I can have on tap while I'm playing other games, too. It doesn't distract me from yeah, playing exactly. other games. Yeah, yeah, so I started playing it. I agree with pretty much everything you said last week. It's really good. Definitely in the early going, it's a, it's a for me at least, it was a little tough to get into because mm. there's just some balanced things early on where someone else will have the card that kills you yeah. and all your monsters. Yeah, and it's like you've got to yeah. There is one of those things because there are you know the, those handful of like legendary cards and stuff that when those yeah. get played. Like, there are lots of ways to deal with them, but, yes. like, if you're new to the game, it's really intimidating when someone throws down, like, a Malagos, which is, like, this big dragon monster, and you're like, yeah. oh, God, oh, God, that thing's, like, an 8-8, it's, like, oh, this, this effect just kills everything. And definitely what I found so far, and what made the game really start to click as just super fun for me yesterday, mm-hmm. was once I started picking, like, I'm going to pick one class, I'm going to try to help, have it yeah. help me build a deck... And then just really get to know this class, yeah, yeah. and I won like four matches in a row. What 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 hero? Mage. Are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm I I started with a mage deck, and then I was was like, hey, I'm going to try something else, and I made a warrior deck that has been really successful. For okay, me. and so I've like tried about five different classes. Yeah, I've tried all of them now. Yeah, yeah. The warrior there's is my there's one so class that kind of sucks because its ability is you lose two HP to get one card. The warlock. Well, yeah, that's. But if you have a lot of like the warlock specific cards are built around card draw so if you have okay. a lot of cards in your hand because if it's like as long as you have like a card advantage you can have a big advantage on the player because you can just on the enemy because you can play a lot more things That's so true. even if you have lower hp if you can burst and like wipe their hp out really quickly like there's a, a bunch of strategies that make that power really useful even though it seems like it sucks like yeah. it, like every time i play as the warlock i don't want to use that power because it feels like why would I want to sap two of my own HP just for another card? But it can be really useful. Yeah, and I understand that. And definitely, like, I had one of my wins yesterday as a mage, which was a big breakthrough moment for me, was where I just, I had enough cards and I had enough mana that I just went past his, he had, like, five minions, I went past all of them, he had, like, 15 health and got yeah. them all down in one turn. Yeah. And those are really satisfying moments. Yeah, like, I had a game last night where I won and I had one HP left. Yeah, and I, I was fighting a hunter and their power just does two damage to you every time they use it. So I literally would have lost the next turn and I was like, oh my... Oh my god, this is the closest game I've ever had. When you get really into Hearthstone and you start getting good at it, man, those matches are so tense. Yeah. It's like you're really like yesterday like it was it was basically time for our, you know, family dinner. We were we were serving dinner and I had to bring my laptop up and just have it on the side cuz I was in the middle of a really intense match. It was one of those ones that goes on forever cuz no one's giving an inch. Yeah, yeah. But I I fucking beat that asshole. <laughs> 
Because he missed. I knew how he could beat me, and he missed it. Yeah, yeah. Fucking it's always idiot. great when an enemy misses a, like a lethal yeah. opportunity. Well, I think that's one of the things that I know makes this a good card game is that while I'm playing it, I also feel like I'm analyzing the other player and what they can do and what they can't do. Yeah. And that's part of the strategy too. And that's really good that your opponent is knowable enough that you're playing kind of both sides. Yeah. Yeah. So no, it's good and and definitely for free to play. I'd pay for this game. Yeah, yeah. Like, and I have not dropped any money on packs. Cause yeah. I, like, because actually, I really enjoy just getting gold and going into arena and stuff and doing that and getting packs just mm-hmm. for free because it's like every time I open one up, it's you know I have more cards that I can play with and it feels like a very natural progression curve as opposed to just like dropping like fifty bucks and getting basically every card in the game as soon as you get it is like. Yeah. You wouldn't know what to do with all those cards, you know? Exactly. So like, it gives you a motivation to just keep on playing the game. It's intimidating enough when I get one booster pack, and I'm like, how do I revise my deck with this? Yeah. <laughs> but no, it's good. Uh, let's see, I've been playing a lot more Titanfall, too. Uh, I, I'm better at Titanfall than I've ever been in a first-person shooter. Mm. I am legitimately good at Titanfall. And I did not That must to mean that. it's a really bad competitive game. <laughs> That's my analysis. Hey. No, I'm yeah, it's because it just has all these you know it's four on four with all these AI fuckers running around. No, 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 that's not it. It's that I'm I'm really good at attrition and, and the sort of the Slayer deathmatch match match style. But it's the it's the definitely the strategy games which I've always been good at in these kind of games. I always am usually near the top of my team if it's a you know um, territories kind of game. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what they call those in Call of Duty, but domination, I domination. Think, yeah. yeah, I'm always really good at those capture the flag and stuff. And in Titanfall, I feel like. I'm really good at the way Titanfall does those, but Titanfall has so many other kind of strategic aspects on top of it beyond just the shooting and running and stuff, which I'm actually getting much better at in Titanfall too. But um, it's like it's 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 it. My skills kind of in these kind of games really apply to it, and it's really fun. But I've already prestiged it, got to level fifty, started over. Yeah, it seems like from what I've heard, the Titanfall like level curve is much sharper mm-hmm. as opposed to Call of Duty, so it's like you can prestige pretty quickly. You can prestige or pretty quickly, they, which is what fun. What do they call it? Regenerating? They is call it regenerating, yeah. and then you're a... And the cool thing is, like, I was... A lot of people have done it. Like, I yeah. was in a match yesterday where my entire team was Generation 2, 3, 4. I think we even had, like, a Gen 7 person on there who apparently just eats, drinks, and sleeps Titanfall. Yeah. Um, but then the other team had mostly Gen 2 or 3 people, too, so... Definitely, there's you know a lot of people are taking advantage of that, and it's fun. It's because like my, on my second generation now, I'm playing with all different weapons and stuff than I did last time, mm. and different titans. So it's a really good game. I'm still going day to day off of old Xbox trial passes. <laughs> I went through all my Xbox cases yesterday to pull them all out, and I have about five left from this giant pile. Nice. I've got another yeah. ten days, and then I might have to shell some money up for mm. it. But who knows? Maybe I'll be done with Titanfall by then. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, but the other game I've, I got, this is this came out back in March in Japan. It's called J-Star's Victory Versus. Yeah. And it's never going to come out in America because most of these characters haven't, yeah. aren't licensed for here and never will be. But it's a game, if you don't know where, you know, a lot of the most famous anime and manga characters come from is Weekly Shonen Jump, the now 45-year-old manga publication in Japan. This is its 45th anniversary this year, so this game... J-Star's Victory Versus is like a celebration game. They've done another couple of these. Um, they had a couple for the DS, and I think once upon a time they had one for the PS2 or 3, but I'm not familiar with that one, um, where they had kind of jump team-up games. Yeah. But this is the this is the first big one in a long time, and it's so it's got characters from all the major jump franchises, or almost all of them. Um, there's a couple that aren't represented here. But, yeah, so, you know, if you like Dragon Ball, if you like One Piece, if you like Naruto, if you like Bleach... Yeah. Uh, Rurouni Kenshin. A lot of the characters from that are in there, and so, sort of like manga Smash Brothers, right? 
Yeah, and I mean, gameplay-wise, not like Smash Brothers. Yeah, yeah, but, but just like the concept. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And it's a, it's a lot of fun. It's better than any game like this has any right to be. Like, mm-hmm. it's just yeah. a really well-done version of it. Um, they've got the god license for everything. Every voice actor is in there, every piece of music, like all the theme songs, if you buy the special edition, which I didn't have the money to get. But it's really cool. There's just a lot of cool stuff about it. Every franchise has, like, one, two, or three characters from it, except One Piece, which has four, because it's, it's One Piece. Yeah. Um, that's a big franchise right now. <laughs> so, and it's funny, I've read, you know, a good deal of One Piece, and I don't know three of the four characters. They haven't appeared, <laughs> really? like, they're from the, like, later half. Wow. But that's a 20-year-old series now. Shit, dude. So, like, I know Luffy, but I don't know where Luffy got the giant scar yet. Because huh. that's on his chest in this game. So... Yeah, but it's neat. Um, I kind of know one of the characters just because I've heard about him. It's Luffy's brother. Um, he has a but, brother? Yep. <laughs> Shit. Yeah. I mean, I only saw, like, maybe 20 episodes of the anime, so I don't yeah. like anything about what people But, like, there's no Nami or Zoro or anything like that. Yeah, like, that. that's, like the, like, the four characters I can think of. No, five is, like, those guys and then Sanji and the dude with the nose was... Aesop, Usop, Usopp, yeah. Usopp, okay, yeah. Yeah. Those are the... So I, if I were to guess what the three characters were, or four characters, I'd guess yeah. what, out of those guys. Apparently not. Yeah. And I've, I've... One of the guys is like the big general from the current story arc that's running, I think, and I've seen him in a couple chapters. I would... Sometimes I'll just dive into Weekly Shonen Jump and see what's going on in one piece and I'll have no idea because it's yeah. 700 chapters past where I am. Uh-huh. But no. Um, so it's, it's a really fun game, though. Like, the fighting system is really good. Each match is... It's two-on-two, so you pick two characters, they pick two characters, and then on top of that, everyone gets a support character. Um, you only control one character, um, but you could play it with another character on the couch next to you and they could control the second, or you could fight them and they could have their own team. Mm. Um, and the team dynamics are not the most important thing in the world. Like, you can kind of just think solo and you're fine, but... It's still, like, it's, it's cool. They're like, one of the neat things is that the maps are big enough that you can be off doing your own thing. You'll beat someone, turn around to see what the action's doing, and you'll see, you know, Frieza and Roroni Kenshin fighting over in the background, <laughs> and you run over to them, and the draw distances are good enough that you can see all that going on. So Unfortunately, I really like Kenshin, but I don't think he would win them that fight no. against, like, the alien-like person who blows up planets. Yep. But here's the He's really, got a sword. Here's the awesome thing about this game is that, you know, I've played through a lot of the characters I know and like. Like, you know, one of my favorite characters in the game is Vegeta. He's really powerful and it's probably my favorite video game version of Vegeta I've ever seen. And I've played a lot of Dragon Ball games. It's a yeah. really good version of Vegeta. But, you know, um, then there will be characters that I don't know so well. Like, I've never read a lot of Rurouni Kenshin, mm-hmm. um, but I started playing as Kenshin, and the awesome thing is no matter what character you play as, once you start to play as them, the, every character is so fundamentally unique in so many ways. Cool. You start to see the ways they're cool, so, like, everyone's got a cool, like, circle button attack, which is, like, their kind of cool signature move, and Kenshin's is he just rushes with his sword and just starts chopping motherfuckers up, and yeah. it's awesome. It's There are so many just badass moments playing this game, and the sense of discovery is awesome, and I kind of like that I don't know most of the characters in the game because there's a lot of discovery to it mm-hmm. and I'm familiar you know with the general series and stuff but yeah. but they also they did such a good job of just honoring every franchise there so you know obviously I, I know Dragon Ball best and the Dragon Ball stuff feels really well done but then there's stuff like they've got Toriyama's other series in their Dr. Slump and you can mm-hmm. play as Arale-chan, the little <laughs> robot girl. And it's every attack is so tailor-made to who that character is. So she'll, you know, her jump attack, she jumps up in the air and then just headbutts on the yeah. ground. And it's hilarious. But it's so true to the character. And even while it's true to the character, she's also a functional fighter that you could totally win matches with. So it's really balanced while also honoring every series. And I think that's the kind of trick that puts this game above the sort of the average curve. It's, yeah. it's really good that way. And all cool. the stages are really nice. 
Um, and the coolest thing is that you can do total custom soundtracks where any music you have on the PS3 you can replace as the in-game match music and then the burst music. So, you know, there's that mode where if you get points high enough, you can go into a burst mode and you're stronger and all that stuff. And you can pick a different special song for that. And so I've had a lot of fun just experimenting with music. Persona music works great for those I burst modes. I imagine so. Lotus Juice, he's all over that game for me. <laughs> nice. No, but J-Star's Victory Versus, it's only available in Japan. It's for the PS3 and the Vita. It is cross-save, but it's not cross-buy. Um, I did not have the money to buy both of these, obviously, because games in Japan are expensive. Yeah. So I just got the PS3 version. It's great. It cost did me you, about... Did you download it with the Japanese PSN account, or did you import it? I imported it. I got it from CD Japan. That's where it's cheapest right now, and it was about 83 bucks with shipping. So, not a bad deal um, for a foreign game. And, you know, what do you need to know to play it? Um, Like, it's not heavy on knowing Japanese. If you know hiragana and katakana, it's smooth sailing all the way. Mm -hmm. Um, If you don't, I think you could still figure it out. Yeah, most, like, video game menus follow a basic... And, like, you know, for characters, they have, like, pictures and shit, so... Right. Yeah, so you'd be fine. And there are lots of menu translations online. I've kind of glanced at them, but I, I haven't really needed them so far. I, I love just seeing, like, Kyarakta Sarekto, yeah, and, like, yeah. reading that out. <laughs> yeah, trying to, like, yeah. parse out what the fuck some of the, like, the, those approximations are, but yeah. Yep. It's fun. So anyway, let's move on. Sean, you got any stuff you want to talk about? Uh, like, the only stuff I've really been doing, I've been, I've been delving back into a lot of Spider-Man shit, because cause I just need to heal the wound, you know? Yeah. So I've been rereading... Like a bunch of the old comics, like like the original Steve Ditko, Stan Lee, and then like go up to like I've just been kind of like picking up random issues that I remember really liking, and then like rereading those, and then I cause those are all really really good. So you know maybe pick up some of like old classic Amazing Spider-Man omnibuses or something instead of watching Amazing Spider-Man two. Then also I, I watched all of uh, Spectacular Spider-Man the animated series. Because that Blu-ray set came? Yeah, yeah. And that show is so fucking good. It's so fucking good, and that Blu-ray set is... It looks better than I expected it to. Yeah, it looks... Yeah, it looks really good. You know, it's got all 26 episodes on there, which I had only seen the first 13 before. Okay. So, like, the, the... And I think the back half is stronger than the first half, too. Which oh, really? Is okay. Impressive for how strong the first half of that show is, but... Yeah, I've and, only seen a little bit of the second half, so... Yeah, and it's really... It really sucks that, that show got canceled, because it had so much potential. Like, the show... the. The the show does wrap up pretty nicely. Like, there's definitely like story threads that are still there that they are trying to pick up. But the last episode completes a story arc, and that's really satisfying. But it's like people should shut the fuck up about Firefly because this show is better than Firefly. Like, legitimately, just straight up, I think better than Firefly was, and it had more more potential for a running series than Firefly had. So it's like it's well. Firefly people, also got a multi-million to, dollar movie, and yeah. the story is over. Yeah, and people, so people should get the fuck over Firefly and start making their petitions to bring Spectacular Spider-Man back. I mean, it's never going to come back. No, it's but, a, it's literally impossible because the yeah. rights are all scattered to the four yeah, corners of like the wind. All the Disney shit. But. I mean, we're so lucky we got a complete series set. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a miracle. Yeah, <laughs> and on Blu-ray, let alone. So I'm just glad to have it on my shelf. <laughs> yeah. So there's so I I watched all of that, and that's so fucking good. And then I also picked up. Two Spider-Man games, which are like the last two Spider-Man games that got decent reviews that I I never played because the last Spider-Man game I played was Spider-Man Three, the movie game, which was fun, but which fun, but had some issues. Had a lot of issues. Had a lot of a lot of issues. Like the core swinging mechanics were still fun, but they were worse than they were in the Spider-Man Two game, which is still the best Spider-Man game. 
that's been made for this past Spider-Man movie also. <laughs> but, yes. Yeah, so I haven't touched Spider-Man Shattered Dimensions, but I've been playing Spider-Man Web of Shadows, and I'm only a little bit in it. Like, I just finished the first act, which is basically the tutorial section. But Spider-Man Web of Shadows, it's pretty good. Like, the the combat is really simple, but it's kind of... It's not like, you know, Arkham satisfying, but it's like, okay, like, it's not broken. Like, a lot of Spider-Man combat is... So the bar is not high. Yeah, so so that's nice, but the swinging feels really satisfying. It's not quite as good as Spider-Man 2, and they don't... Well, they kind of... It feels like you're actually attaching to buildings. They fudge it a lot, and, like, they're not even, like, trying to hide it, you know, like, because you still swing, like, a pendulum and stuff, but a lot of times you are literally just attaching to nothing, and if you just stop and look up, you'll just see that the web is just hitting some point in the air and just stopping, but if you're just in constant motion, like, it feels really good. And, they, they like, their movement system kind of has to do that to make that concession. So the movement still feels really good. And, like, the, the voice acting is fucking terrible. The voice for Spider-Man is unbelievably bad. In the opening scene, because the whole point, the whole premise of Web of Shadows... And I haven't even gotten to the part where it, like, gets crazy. But it's, like, Spider-Man fights Venom, gets the black suit again... And then there's sort of like a... It's kind of like in like an Elseworlds story in terms of like like a what if Spider-Man got the black suit again. And then like you can either be like black suit Spidey all the time in like basically like, you know, like the evil path and in infamous, you know. Or you can just be actual fucking Spider-Man doing actual fucking Spider-Man shit. But the way the game opens is that eventually at some point in the game, I think Venom spawns like some crazy symbiote, like massive huge symbiote invasion of New York... And so, like, every, like, like, so symbiotes, like, take over everything, and they're a bunch of, like, this villain has, like, their symbiote version that they've never had in the comics and stuff like that. And the opening is a prologue that takes place at the, or, like, a thing that takes place at the end of the game and then flashes back. And so Spidey is super intense in that prologue, but this guy cannot do intense Spidey, and it just sounds super whiny and annoying. But I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how just, like, dumb the story is going to get, because it looks like it's going to get really fucking dumb nice alright well you want to move on to a couple quick pieces of news yeah alright alright so Sean let's see what we got here our first piece of news we talked about this briefly last week which is that Atlas had announced they were going to do a little bit of Persona news yeah which always excites us yes and that happened basically the day after we recorded so we didn't get to talk about it well the news came out and it was a long you know kind of conference they had um, sort of video stream they were talking about the movies that are coming out and whatnot. but finally their big announcement at the end is that they are releasing a new anime based on the Persona 4 Vita remake Persona 4 Golden Persona the 4 Golden. The Golden yes. Jonathan you cannot forget that definite, definite article the Japanese and their misplaced definite articles is <laughs> yeah. the best thing ever. Well, you know, they don't exist in the Japanese right. language, so it makes sense why they would confuse them. I, I've thought about that before. How would you explain the word the to someone who didn't have definite articles in their language? It would be so weird. Yeah. 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 But no. So Persona 4 The Golden, it's getting an anime adaptation. There's a brief trailer which basically shows the end of Persona 4... And then it shows Marie from Persona 4 Golden, and I have no idea what this show is going to be. My assumption yeah. would be that it's just Persona 4 the anime again with a couple extra episodes and material scattered throughout to add in the Golden content. Yeah, because it's important to note, like, they made a complete anime adaptation of Persona 4 that I've seen is pretty good, Persona 4 the animation. So my guess is that Persona 4 the Golden, that it's going to be... Like, maybe a handful of OVAs, original video animation, which is, like, sort of standalone episodes that are usually, like, packed in with, like, manga bonuses or something for anime. Yeah. And that would be my guess, because it seems weird that you would do a whole 
a whole complete series because that the Persona Four the animation only came out like a handful of years ago, so it seems weird that well, you like. And then they made a movie of like taking the, the Persona Four the animation and paring it down to like a single movie format too. So I have no idea. Well, yeah, and I guess what I was trying to say is that that would be my assumption when I hear about this is that it would just be the series again with the extra content. But the trailer doesn't imply that at all. Like it shows you coming back. To Inaba and then seeing Marie So I don't know if it's going to be like a new story That incorporates some golden elements Or what Like if I Like my My guess is that it's going to be like Maybe three OVAs that just basically tell The additional story content From Persona 4 the Golden That like could Kind of just like Taking place in between Persona 4 the animation And mostly probably focusing on Marie I would guess yeah, we'll see. It's weird. I mean, it, all, all the news stories I've read say, you know, specifically it's airing in Japan. I don't see like a TV network yeah. um, distinguished there, but it's so it's weird. It's I'm excited to see what this turns out to yeah, be, but it's very it strange. Is. Yeah. All right. So what else have we got here? Uh, okay, Nintendo's big announcement this week is they announced a Ruby and Sapphire remake right. for the 3DS. Uh, as all Pokemon fans know, Nintendo when they don't have new Pokemon games out, they just re-release old Pokemon yeah, games. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of those re-releases have been really good. I liked the golden or the the red and blue ones for Game Boy. I liked the gold yeah, and silver fire ones for red DS. And green. Yeah, heart gold and soul silver were really well done. So yeah, but because those are the two like best generations of Pokemon games. Yeah. So. Now you're remaking the Pokemon games that I don't like. So now I don't give a fuck. Well, and I'm actually kind of looking forward to this because Ruby was my favorite as a kid. This is the one I played the most. This is when I really like. I played red and blue and gold and silver, but I really like got heavy into Pokemon. It's funny because Ruby. like that's like the one that like when it got to that generation, I like I never beat those games because I just couldn't. Oh, I've, I've beat them so many times as a kid. I, I like them. I think they do some fun stuff with it. And I'm I'm most excited because I really liked the Pokemon XY formula. I thought they it was a really nice step forward. If they bring kind of, I guess, the Ruby Sapphire stuff into that model, that would be cool. As I always say with this, though, I would still prefer they just make new Pokemon games. This is kind of weird, but oh well. Um, it seems nice uh, if they throw in a lot of the stuff from X and Y into this. It could be fun. And... Um, it's another sign that Nintendo is doing everything they can to support the 3DS, and they've effectively given up on the Wii U. So, yeah. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> That's Nintendo. Yep. Again, buy Mario Kart 8, get a free Wii U game, <laughs> they've given up. Yes. Like, please, please buy the Wii U. It's what it is called Omega Ruby. I think this is Alpha Sapphire and Omega Ruby. Oh, uh, yeah. Omega Ruby and Alpha Sapphire. And, uh, yeah, we, we have And no- it's, like... You know, every Pokemon generation has, like, the one game that's, like, come on, like, that's the way cooler one. Omega Ruby, that is a way better name than Alpha Sapphire. Yep. Like, Alpha Sapphire is not even a good name. No, it Omega sounds... Omega Ruby, that sounds pretty fucking cool. Alpha Sapphire sounds like a porn star. Yeah. <laughs> it totally does. It totally does. It sounds like a porn star in some weird dystopian, like a robot porn star in the dystopian yeah. future. Alpha <laughs> Sapphire. We need a Will Smith movie about that. Yeah. <laughs> I caught like five minutes of iRobot on cable the other day, so that's why it's on my yeah. mind. That movie hey man, is I'm terrible. always thinking about Will Smith. Okay. He's always on my mind. <laughs> Will Smith Pokemon movie. <laughs> he can do a rap about having to be the very best. Yeah, Will Smith plays Brock. What happened to rapping Will Smith? That was the best. When At the end of every movie, he would rap about that's the story true. of the movie. Yeah. I mean, that was... Like, that was a long time ago. That was a very long... That was like Men in Black 2, maybe, was the last yeah. time I remember him doing that. But he doesn't do that anymore. It's too bad. Imagine how much better After Earth could have been. <laughs> <laughs> right, like, he just... The rap called Fear's Choice or whatever. Yeah. He could do try to do um, M. Night Shyamalan and try to work that into a rap, that yeah. name. That'd be great. M. All M. right. Night Shyamalan. 
All right. Uh, Nintendo was also in the news this right, week, yeah. and in fact, this overshadowed, at least in the circles I read, uh, the Ruby Sapphire announcement. Yeah, yeah. Was Nintendo has this shitty little game coming out called Tomodachi Life? Yeah, is that which, what it's called? Yeah, it's Tomodachi Life, which is a either a sequel or kind of like a like juiced up remake of a game that only came out in Japan called Tomodachi Collection. And so Tomodachi Life came out in Japan a year ago, and then very recently they revealed that they're uh, localizing it and releasing it over here pretty soon. It's kind of in the Animal Crossing vein. It's one of those yeah. little life sim kind of games. But there was a big um, kind of controversy because you it has marriage in it, but you can yeah, only... Yeah, because it takes in me's, I believe, and like... Like, the descriptions of the, the actual game confuse me because it sounds like... Because a lot of the people talking about this whole issue... They describe it like the game is like The Sims, but the people I've heard that actually describe the game, they basically describe like you have no direct control over your Miis, but it's like... So in the game, your Miis can get married. I don't think you, like, choose to marry your Miis, but they can get married. Right. But in the game, uh, only men and women can get married, so there's basically no gay marriage. Right, and this this obviously caused a controversy. People uh, put around a petition. It wasn't like... And it was, you know, I was kind of happy to see how this went down because it wasn't... Just random internet anger. It was a well organized. Yeah, yeah. There the original of, like it, it was called me quality. That original yeah. movement. Yeah, yeah, and it was just it was kind of you know nice and down to earth and thoughtful. And there were a lot of good think pieces out there about it. But Nintendo did not handle it well. They they came <laughs> Their back. Their original statement did not handle it well. No, I've I've got it right here. Here's the important part of the statement they put out about the petition, which is Nintendo never intended to make any form of social commentary with the launch launch of Tomodachi Life. The relationship options in the game represent a playful alternate world rather than a real-life simulation. We hope that all of our fans will see that Tomodachi Life was intended to be a whimsical and quirky game, and that we were absolutely not trying to provide social commentary, thus saying, gays are not whimsical and quirky. Or something to that effect, right? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's basically, that's what, that's, that's, it's just, it's such a boneheaded statement to release to an American audience, because it's like... It sounds like something from the 50s from America, yes. you know, of like, this is not a political statement. It's like, fuck you, no, it totally is. Yes. Like, it 100% is if, like, from an American perspective, it absolutely is. Now, the thing with this issue is, this like, that statement was so stupid. Because they issued another statement later after this, like, controversy blew up because of that first statement that released that was fucking stupid. And their second statement was basically, hey, like... This is the way the game was originally designed. We can't really change it. Like, that's... It's too much into the game's design. We can't fix it. But we, we understand your concerns and we'll take it into consideration and think about future installments of the Tomodachi franchise being more inclusive. Which is all they needed to say. Yeah, which is all they needed to say. Also, no way another Tomodachi game is going to come over here after this controversy because this game's not going to sell worse shit anyways. Like, it's a miracle it got localized in the first place. Yeah. So, irrelevant... But I think one thing that's like, one thing that kind of frustrated me about like the internet blowing up about this is that everybody lost a certain point of perspective about the fact that this was a Japanese game originally made for a Japanese audience, and in Japan, gay marriage is not legal. It's not even like a, it's not a big political like social issue over there yet, or maybe it never will be. Who knows? But it's like. It's so arrogant to me for like an American for Americans to like say, "Oh, here's this weird, quirky, tiny little Japanese game that is getting localized." That for fuck's sake is called Tomodachi Life. Like it has a Japanese word in the goddamn title, and you expect it to represent American cultural values instead of Japanese cultural values. Like whether or not you agree with Japanese cultural values, 
Like, the fact that you're shocked that there is no gay marriage in the game just tells me that you don't have any cultural perspective there. No, and I agree with that completely. It was... It's just, it's a weird thing all around because people have a right to be, you know, upset about it once that statement comes out definitely. Yeah, that statement was fucking so boneheaded, I could not believe it. When I, I laughed my ass off when I read that because it was like, this is exactly what Nintendo would fucking say. Yeah. The perfect wrong thing to say in this situation. And, and I mean, I should clarify my joke about whimsy and stuff. It's they're basically saying we can only, it's that old kind of thing you would hear in the 50s of, yeah. we can only have whimsy and fun if we keep the gays out. And yeah, it's like, kind of, yeah. That's, it's just, it's really exclusionary. And I think the thing was, you know, people... You know, there's nothing wrong with kind of being upset about it and saying, oh, maybe there should be more equality and whatnot. But yeah, once it's... I still think they're the ones who made it the issue by not just kind of coming out and saying, there's this cultural divide. Yeah. Yeah, and that's where it comes and the, from. And there's a cultural divide, and it can't be changed. Like, that's yeah. the ridiculous expectation on, on our part to, like, expect them to go in and, like, change this fundamental yeah. part of the game, you know? Yeah. So there's just a lot of layers to this. It's just... And, and the thing is, Nintendo could have kept out of it so easily and yeah. instead they kind of made this whole what yeah, I called the Nintendo gay marriage kerfuffle yeah, they, which, they really stuck their foot in their mouth with this one yes so anyway um, but you know it's not the worst thing Nintendo's done recently yeah no yeah <laughs> yeah so anyway it's just it's a, maybe another nail in that coffin yeah it's a weird it was a really weird week on the internet with gaming news everyone talking about this but yeah I mean I, Nintendo's been in the middle of a lot of weird stuff, but a gay marriage controversy, I would not <laughs> yeah, have... Yeah, it's not what you anticipate with Nintendo. That's definitely true. Yeah. I'm imagining, you know, Mario, like, out campaigning for gay rights now. Yeah. It's hard to imagine. Alright, so anyway, let's see. What else we got going on here? Uh, this is the big news from today. This yeah. broke just today. Uh, Microsoft, seemingly out of the blue here, has announced that a Kinect-free Xbox One will be coming June 9th to all territories that have the Xbox One currently, and it'll be priced at $399. That price may be familiar to you. Yeah. It is the price of the PlayStation 4. Yes, Jonathan, it is. So, everyone knew this had to come at some point. Are you surprised it came this soon? I'm really surprised that they didn't announce this at E3. Yeah. Like, because it seems to me... You know, if you want to get the kind of crazy applause that Sony got, you know, at their uh, conference last year, this is the kind of thing you want to announce. It's like, hey, you know you guys, like, what you've been asking for since we announced the Xbox One, all you people who fucking hate the Kinect, well, guess what? You don't need it anymore. It's 400, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, yeah! I'm surprised that they didn't, you know, take that opportunity because they also revealed... Like, kind of, news that, again, releasing it at the same time, kind of like, this news is not getting reported as much. Right. That they talked about their, their revamping Xbox. the way Xbox Live Gold works. They're making a lot more like PlayStation Plus that most of the, like, Netflix and those kind of services you don't need to have gold to use anymore, which is huge. And then also, they're making games with gold more robust to be more like the PlayStation Plus offerings and having that work for Xbox One as well. Right. So, like... So, it's interesting to me that they would package both of those announcements together with, you know, the Xbox One Connect free thing, like, way overshadowing the other news, which the other news is actually more pertinent to me and I'm more interested in, because that means if I ever need to for some reason, I could, in the future now, use my Xbox 360 to watch Netflix without having to pay $50 a year, which is fantastic. $60 a year. Yeah, I'm sorry, I was thinking PlayStation Plus prices. Yep. So no, it's yeah, and it's these are all things Xbox needed to do. They're good moves. They're pro-consumer moves. They, they they're good for everybody. But yeah, it's just kind of a weird way to announce it, and it's just 
it it just continues to show how their how stupid yeah. their original idea for the Xbox One was because the Kinect was something nobody ever needed. Nothing about the Xbox One ever needed. There's not a single game out for the Xbox One that uses it. Well, there, 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 there are like three. There's like Kinect Sports Rivals. There's oh. Ubisoft's. The Fighter Within? There's no games people have bought that use this stuff. I mean, yeah, but, you know, it's wrong to say that there are no games that, okay. like, rely... They rely They're entirely punk. <laughs> they might as well not exist. Hey, um, Kinect Sports Rivals has David Tennant as the narrator. That's really cool. Yeah. And how, much did they, weird. how much did they have to pay him to get him to I, do that? I don't know. I don't, it's weird. It was a weird thing. But. I wonder if David Tennant has, like, tax problems or something right now, because <laughs> he's taking a lot of jobs that are weird to me. Sure. Like the Broadchurch remake for the U.S. where he's playing the same character, but with an American accent. I think that's incredible. I'm so happy he's doing that, because if I was an actor, I would fucking do that just for, like, the laughs, you know? But he's also doing the second season of Broadchurch, so it's, yeah. like, it's a lot of weird stuff. Anyway... Um, Maybe they'll do an American Broadchurch and British Broadchurch crossover where he meets him his American self. That's the that's the whole secret. It's his it's his American twin brother. You yes. know, yeah, that'd be a fantastic second season to Broadchurch. All right. Well, anyway, um, what were we talking about? Connect. Yes. Yeah. So, but Not yeah, the Connect is basically barely utilized with the Xbox One. It's just there for voice commands. Yeah, it's basically everyone only uses it for UI navigation, as far as I understand. Yeah, and then only because the UI is so bad, yeah, you need yeah. it. That um, UI, I, I don't obviously don't own an Xbox One, but every time I see a video where it goes into the UI, it scares me. Like there's like there's just, my heart drops to my stomach. Like oh god, what is this? Especially what have you done? What have you done? Especially because compared to the PS4, every time I turn that on, I maybe make two button presses yeah. and I'm done with the UI because everything's just right there. Mm-hmm. It's weird, but yeah. Anyway, um, so yeah, they're getting ready to connect. They're bringing the price down. This is what they needed to do. There was really never any good justification for having the connect there in the first place, and it, it fully shows that their initial, you know. Um, Protestations that the X, the connect was integral to it and it had yeah. to be there and couldn't be disconnected and all that. They've backtracked and backtracked and backtracked to the point where now the connect not only will not be there, but now it really has no future because if it's not bundled in, yeah, they've just peripheralized it, which yeah. I've never seen that happen before. That's like we're going to make this thing that is, is effectively a peripheral, but it's going to be packaged in with everything, and it's like now we're just <laughs> we're just going to take it out and just like render it a peripheral again and effectively useless, you know? Yes. Oh well, Very but strange. if you've been on the fence about getting an Xbox One, this will be the time to get it, not have to deal with that Connect. Yeah, and, or uh, you know, I don't because if I, I mean, honestly, if I did get an Xbox One, I would want to get the Connect version because it's like, why else would you get an Xbox One? Like other than maybe to just play only the Xbox One exclusive games. But there's, there's no other than that. If you really want to play Microsoft exclusive games, there's no compelling argument to get an Xbox One because it's just a weaker platform than the PlayStation 4 for the same price. I agree. You know, it needs to be cheaper than the PS4 to make an argument for it. It does. I mean, and, and we're also hearing, you know, Watch Dogs is going to be running significantly higher on the PS4. Yeah, yeah they said 1080p, 60 frames per second. Like, who knows? Like, I've seen some people be skeptical about it, and I kind of am too, but we'll see when it comes out. Like, maybe if it's 1080p, 60 frames on on PS4 and not on Xbox One, like, that's, that's bad news. Well, but that's every game that's come out for the PS4. Yeah. They're not necessarily... Well, I mean, the 1080p thing is true, but, like, 60 frames per second, if it's 60 on PS4 and only 30 on Xbox One, like, that's, that's a, like, a death that, blow. That was, that was Tomb Raider Definitive Edition. Oh, really? I yes. Yeah. yeah. It ran double the frame rate on PS4. Yeah, shit. Like, that's, yeah. that's, that's like, a, that's a death punch. Like, that's, that's, yep. that's a knockout right there. No, and that's part of why I... The, honestly, Tomb Raider was what turned me around on really being a proponent of frame rates, because it's so 
beautiful and I yeah. just it's the same resolution but because you've got basically double the image information yeah, 60 frames per second is far more important to me than 1080p yeah absolutely and there's nothing that's running above 30 on the Xbox One I don't think is Titanfall Titanfall 60 yeah it is okay but Titanfall also Titanfall looks like a fucking 360 game to it me, does so. yes so that's how they got that so anyway uh, a lot of weird stuff going on with Xbox maybe this will help them out maybe it won't Still doesn't seem like the Xbox... It feels like the Xbox One is definitely in a better place than it's been before. I, sure, but I mean, this like the fact that they're doing this just proves that they're they're getting kind of desperate to me. That it's like Because they're, what they're doing is they're sacrificing their platform's unique identity by just discarding the Kinect. They're just saying it's like they kind of give up. You know, yeah. They're just like, we're just going to make a traditional, normal-ass video game console. But unfortunately, since they weren't trying to do that from the start... Now they've got, you know, because imagine, you know, people getting the fucking Xbox One without the Kinect. Like, that system is still technically designed with to be used with the Kinect from the ground up. Like, how bizarre must that UI be to, like, to someone who doesn't have the Kinect? And it's like, it's like a Windows 8 computer without a touchscreen. Basically, yeah, yeah. Especially, like, if it was original Windows 8. That's yeah. what I mean, yeah. yeah. Newer Windows 8 has been revised to make it more friendly for everyone, yeah. and it's a good UI now, but, exactly. like, at the time, yeah. Yeah. yeah, if you had the old school Windows 8 that, like, basically only had the Metro used interface be usable for a significant quantity of stuff and you didn't have a touchscreen. it's like this is ridiculous this thing is designed to use something that i do not possess because this the machine i bought doesn't have it all right so here's a question yes um ps4 is far away in the lead yes no question they're they're dominating hardcore and they've got the stuff coming out throughout the rest of the year to continue that dominance yeah definitely now, Xbox is not in any way in like the Wii U situation. It's selling well. Mm, it's yeah. it's doing fine, but it's lagging. This is another move that kind of shows desperation. Yeah. Is there anything they can do to really turn this around, or are they kind of they're not going to go away? Yeah, no, not, this, yeah, they're not doing that bad. Are they kind of stuck being second fiddle for the foreseeable future? I think so because I honestly I think their only hope to overtake the PS4 was the Connect. Ironically, like if the Connect could have worked. If they found some, like, were able to patch the, the fucking Xbox One and figure out something that made that Kinect seem really essential and integral and really innovative and new and useful, that's the argument for the Xbox One. Taking the Kinect out, just like, you're basically giving up and saying it's like, we're going to double down on being second place. Like, that's what it feels like to me. That it's like, there, it's not a winning move, but it's like you're, instead of like trying to make some sort of crazy gamble and win the console war, instead you're sort of like, you know, plugging up the leak, basically. Yeah. I mean, it's also, I mean, what, do you know of any major exclusives that are coming out that could really buoy the system? Because I'm not, Titanfall like, is it that I know of. Halo, like, like Halo's not, but even then, I was going to say that Halo's not what it was, you know, it can't, I don't think it's enough to really save that console well I mean I'll tell you what war if, if both you and I who are some of the biggest Halo fans yeah like or if, were back in the previous generations aren't going to buy an Xbox One for there's it there's a lot more people who are in our situation as well yeah and there are a lot of people less, much more casual than you and I yeah, are yeah that are not yeah like Halo is not the force that it was before especially not of, like the hardcore Halo community really rejected Halo 4 like a lot so it's true and it's also possible that the the Halo game coming out this year is not Halo 5 it might be Halo 2 anniversary that's been hinted at a lot really yeah. so if if they're launching Halo on the Xbox One with not a new Halo game that's not good yeah and then so you know they still like because Epic I, I think it's because it's like Epic is not going to make the new Gears of War game but like Microsoft still has the rights to Gears of War so it's been I'm not sure if it's been confirmed or it's just heavily rumored that there's going to be another Gears of War game. Like, that's not going to have enough, I think, no. to 
sway people. Like they've got that all that Sunset Overdrive stuff came out, but that's not a game that's going to appeal to a really hardcore gaming audience. So I don't know. I and don't even know Titanfall, which is a great game and was did not a big do, push, did not do particularly. Yeah, huge. I mean it did well, but it did yeah. not do nearly well enough to like it didn't, save them. It didn't even do you know infamous Second Sun numbers. Yeah, like they haven't released like the specific numbers for it. But yeah, it's not. In, I know it did um, not. It did not save that console, obviously, because if it did, they wouldn't be doing this. Yeah, there was a sales call, or not a sales call, but a uh, financial call recently, where I know the reported numbers for the first couple weeks of sales for Titanfall were under a million on PC and Xbox One combined. Yeah. So, you know, um, I don't know if that takes digital into account or three. It doesn't. Take I mean, Titanfall has definitely sold over a million now. Right. But, like they haven't released specifically what it's done, it, and if it, it did crazy well, like you always release those numbers if you right. do really well. It didn't become the new Call of Duty they needed it yeah, to be. Yeah. Which is too bad because it's a phenomenal game, but you know, it's interesting. I mean, actually, between the two um, big like exclusives that we've had for the two big consoles this year, Infamous and Titanfall, I like Titanfall more. Hmm. But it's you know, um, I wonder if it's just it's almost. It's almost like the Xbox exclusives are too Xboxy in a weird way. Like they just appeal to this sure. audience that's just insulated and isn't necessarily going to bring in the outside people. Whereas I feel like something like Infamous Second Son, it's an old PlayStation franchise, but it's also new enough and different enough that yeah. I can see people who don't maybe didn't play PlayStation before, didn't play Infamous before, coming buying a PS4, playing that and being on board because it's a little more broad in that and sense. And it's really pretty. Yes. And you know, superheroes are in. So yeah, superhero games. It's a good idea. Superheroes are in, but sometimes superhero movies can be the scourge of existence. Oh, so I, I wasn't planning on setting you up for a segue, but sure. Uh, all right, Sean, we're going to talk about The Amazing Spider-Man 2. So here's your warning. We're going to start talking about the movie again. Gwen dies. <laughs> so don't stop the podcast and go see the movie. That's normally what we would tell you to do here. Don't You don't want to see this. You just want to listen to us. This is a terrible, terrible movie. And I guess my starting question here... So we can prepare people. Sean, is this the worst movie we've ever talked about on this podcast? You talked about after last season on a previous podcast. It's, I mean, that's, that's not a fair comparison. You know, after last season is the worst movie. But, like, after last season is a movie with, like, three actors in it that is shot... They, I don't, they probably didn't even have a fucking boom mic, you know, when they shot that movie. Like, it barely even counts. So it's like, yes, After Last Season is a worse movie than Amazing Spider-Man 2, but, like, if you're even making that comparison, like, you've already fucked up, you know? Because Amazing Spider-Man 2 is a movie that has, like, hundreds of millions of dollars behind its budget and its marketing and everything. After Last Season was made with, like, the pennies they got out of their fucking couch, you know? Alright, so let's just limit it to the new movie. So out of theatrical, like, Hollywood releases? Oh, God, yes. Yeah, yeah, like... So other points of comparison would be... Transformers Dark uh, Transformers Revenge of the Fallen Yeah Transformers 2 It's worse than that Okay it's worse than Transformers 2 And it's worse than Prometheus Yes Okay And and also Because this is just for me It's way worse than Man of Steel I'm sorry Man of Steel Like you You're okay now On my book Like compared to this movie You were were like We're good We're good Man of Steel Here's where I want to start though Sure So your primary dislike with Man of Steel was not with the acting or the cinematography or things like that. Yeah. It was with, you felt it it misinterpreted Superman and was a bad Superman story. Yeah, and I thought, like, even just as, like, a narrative structure for the movie, I thought a lot of that stuff was was not that good. But not, like, terrible, but it it could have been a lot better. Okay, but your view was that it was more a story thing, it was a competently made movie, though. Yeah, yeah, like, the acting was good, like, a lot of the dialogue was okay, The, the action was really well shot. 
So, so here's the thing. I think, and this is what I said in my review, and I think it's the best starting place for Amazing Spider-Man 2, which is that most of the time when we dislike superhero movies, so for instance, when you dislike Man of Steel, when I dislike, you know, Ang Lee's Hulk, or the Fantastic Four movies, or Joel Schumacher Batman movies, it usually comes not so much from bad filmmaking, although Joel Schumacher Batman qualifies yeah um but more because i feel like they do something they just don't understand the characters they don't understand the appeal so like fantastic four i don't think it's a horribly made movie i don't even think it's a horrible movie it's just it's such a bland version of the fantastic four Mm -hmm. it's like you didn't really get what was fun and cool about these characters yeah yeah it's a poor adaptation yeah so that's usually where it comes from amazing spider-man 2 has that problem but yes it does much more fundamentally yeah it is just a poorly made movie. Yes. Horribly made movie. Yes. It is atrociously written. The dialogue is nails on a chalkboard. The story is not even there. It's like four or five... It's all, as I said in my review, it's comprised exclusively of subplots. There's no cumulative impact whatsoever. Yeah. The subplots don't interact. They're all scattered to the four corners of the wind, and then they try to bring it together at the end with Gwen dying, and at that point I found the movie legitimately and hugely offensive. Because I think <laughs> sure, some yeah. of the stuff it does there is legitimately exploitative, and in a, yeah, a disgusting way. Um, so that's... The problem, and then it's it's poorly acted. I think I don't even think it's well shot. I don't like the cinematography all that much. Uh, the music by Hans Zimmer is atrocious. I don't know why you would ever hire Hans Zimmer to do Spider Man. He's a good composer, but he's a good Batman Superman composer, not yeah. Spider Man. Yeah, and he did a horrible job here. And I just the acting is bad all over the place, and it's all good actors. Everyone in this movie is a good actor, and there's nothing they can do. They're yeah. all awful. Like, I feel so bad for Dane DeHaan, who played the Green Goblin. Yeah. He's, I know he's a good actor, but that's a terrible performance, and I don't think there's anything anyone could have done with it. Also, I'm not even going to say that he played the Green Goblin, because that, okay. at no point no. did Harry Osborn become anything resembling the Green Goblin. No, he did movie. not. Okay, he played a character called Harry Osborn. Yeah. He didn't play Harry Yeah, his Osborne. character didn't even resemble Harry Osborn in any way. That's a good point. So everything in the movie is underdeveloped. Not a single, and I mean not one solitary character motivation makes sense or is well developed. Yeah. So like, Gwen's motivation for the entire movie is just, I'm going to go to Oxford. That's it. That's all they gave Gwen Stacy for an entire two hour movie. And, and Electro... Electro is just the Riddler from Batman Forever, but the Riddler in Batman Forever was more interesting, and yeah. I should never have to say that <laughs> sentence. God. I should never have to say the Riddler in Batman Forever was more interesting than anything else. That sentence should never come out of my yeah. mouth. Amazing Spider-Man 2 made that sentence come out of my mouth. I like Batman Forever significantly more than this movie. Yes. I kind of enjoy Batman Forever. This is a piece of I like of Batman shit. and Robin more than this movie. I do too. Batman, Batman and Robin is a more enjoyable movie than it's this It's more one. enjoyable. I think it's a better movie. It's, yeah. it's, it's better acted. <laughs> sure, yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger is more interesting than Jamie Foxx as Electro. Yeah. And I think Jamie Foxx is probably a better actor overall. But, you know, what can he do with this? Yeah, like, their version of Electro, especially by the time you get to, like, the second act, when he actually becomes Electro, he's just, you know, he's about as interesting as the Batman Robin, like, the fucking Bane. That oh, yeah. just like Who's just not even a character, you know? He's just a thug. He just becomes a thug. So, okay, I kind of gave yeah. my overall thoughts. Where do you start with it, Sean? Okay, yeah, so... So basically here, this is my... Th- if, if you don't want to listen to us talk about Amazing Spider-Man 2 and yell about it, what you can do is go listen to our last podcast and listen to our discussion about Spider-Man 2 and just pretend that instead that we are not ourselves and we are our bizarro selves, where everything we say is the opposite. <laughs> That's basically what Amazing Spider-Man 2 is. It is like the, the weird bizarro negaverse version 
of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2. Because Where everything it did good, this movie does bad. Yeah, and like maybe the one thing that is that I actually think is like kind of okay about this movie is which is has nothing to do really with this movie. Is that Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone still have really good chemistry. No, I don't think they do in this movie. I think they do. I think they, I it's, don't. I think it owes nothing to the movie. It's just like they're. Them as people just have chemistry. Like, the dialogue, and the I characters. And I didn't think so. I thought the dialogue was so bad, and I thought Mark Webb directed them so poorly. Like, there's that scene where they meet up right before Electro's big, like, entrance into the movie yeah. in Times Square. And they're talking, and they're going back and forth. And I wanted to go up on screen and punch them both in the face. Like, by the end, I was praying for Gwen or him to die. Because it was like, I hated them as people. They became sure. repulsive as I mean, characters. Oh, God. Yeah, they're a they version be- of Peter Parker. I despise... I despise him. And they, they made... More than anything in, I've ever despised in my life. They made that like, relationship toxic. I think they drove every inch of chemistry out of Andrew's, uh, Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone. To the point where I went back... And like you know, just looked at clips of Amazing Spider-Man one online, and was sickened by them just in <laughs> retrospect. And that's a movie where all this, they th- that is another like fascinating thing about this movie. This movie makes Amazing Spider-Man one awful in it retrospect. Does. Like, I it, hate it now. Which is a movie I liked. Like I rewatched Amazing Spider-Man one the night before I saw two, and I was like, yeah, like this movie definitely has a lot of flaws, but it's still enjoyable. But then it's like everything about it just is now terrible because this movie, Amazing Spider-Man 2, so drops the ball on everything that Amazing Spider-Man 1 set up. It's like, well, fuck, Amazing Spider-Man 1 is shit. And I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what. I have always argued with people who say, you know, a bad ending or a bad sequel ruins another movie for them. I've never believed that could happen. I think that's asinine. I believe it now because Amazing Spider-Man 2 was that bad. And it took the things that were good about the first one, their good foundations, and just shit all over them, like Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone's chemistry. It really, they really were off-putting to me in this movie because I think the direction and the way it was shot and the way it was scored and especially the way it was written, just there's nothing for them to do. Okay, well, I don't like, and like I said, like I don't, I'm not saying like the dialogue or any of that is good. But I think, like, I still think they, as people, just have a certain chemistry that is appealing in a way that Tobey Maguire and Kirsten Dunst didn't. It's not, like, a big flaw of Spider-Man 2. But it's like, like I said, it's, it's like the opposite for me. It's like it's the one thing. It's the one thing that's, like, the little tiny bit, the weird little bump that Amazing Spider-Man 2 kind of has over Spider- the actual Spider-Man 2. I'm, this one, I'm just going to call it actual Spider-Man 2. Because Amazing Spider-Man 2 is not amazing. Okay, it's amazing, but not in good ways. And it's not a Spider-Man movie. No. It is too. It is, it's an actually a sequel. But it's a really bad one. So anyways, yeah, but... You, you can, so you can listen to that and just... It's the reverse movie. And, and again, you know, I, we don't need to reiterate how big of a Spider-Man fan I am. So, but I'm not... I don't want to start out talking about this movie with me raging about how bad of a Spider-Man movie it is. I, I want to build to that. Yeah, I think it's more important to talk about how bad of a movie it is. And yes. for me, I agree with basically, basically everything you said. I think, like, the movie has these tiny, tiny individual moments that I'm like, this could work in a different movie. Like, like if you isolate this moment, like, cut it out, put it in a different Spider-Man movie where other stuff around it was built to like build up to it and pay it off like there are individual moments that could have worked in a different movie I think so too like yeah. an example for me is the entire ending of the film sure, I think like the, the, the last scene stuff. the rhino stuff at the end there's a lot of stupid there like the kid and that thing but I, I think, actually kind of like the kid. I think that kid. I think that kid was the best part of the whole movie because that in like his earlier scene where Spider-Man helps him when he's getting bullied, 
like when Spider-Man helps him when he's getting bullied that's like the only good like scene in the whole film to me. I guess so that it's like but again it's it's useless because it has nothing to do with anything else in the whole movie but uh, what I would say is that in terms of those little nuggets of quality that yeah. are not even quality but nuggets of potential sure I think that last scene is this nugget of potential where if that were the ending to a legitimately good Spider-Man movie where it built to everything it paid off on things yeah. Gwen's death meant something Peter's sadness meant something then we would get to that scene and it would feel like such an emotional payoff because look at it it's Peter coming out of the ashes of his grief and coming yeah. back to fight and it's it's decently staged and you kind of end on this nice moment it's not a cliffhanger it's just you know where he's going back into battle again yeah but because it's the ending to an awful movie, I wanted to just go kill every person on screen. Yeah, like if that had been the ending to a movie where Gwen Stacy died in the second act and the whole third act was building up to that moment. Yes. Yeah, that like I could totally see that happening in that movie. But here, this is why I just want to say about Amazing Spider-Man 2 purely as a film, as, as it trying to tell a story. I have never seen something so amateurish, so pathetic, so fail... At the most basic, fundamental structures of telling a plot in my entire life. I agree. Anything. It is so bad. It is like an eight-year-old wrote the fucking screenplay for this movie. You're cutting eight-year-olds short here, Sean. <laughs> it's like, because it's basically, it's just, like you said, it's a series of subplots or... Like three plots and one subplot, maybe. Like if you, this is like for it to be a subplot, there has to be an actual plot. But there are three main plots of this movie. There's Harry Osborn, there's Electro, there's his relationship with Gwen, which all carry the same amount of screen time, the same amount of importance, all of which have nothing to do with each other. So it's not like any one of them is subservient to any other of those threads in the entire movie. And then he has this one, what I would designate as a subplot, which is the Richard Parker bull, like his parents' bullshit, which has literally. Nothing to do with anything else in the entire movie. So I call that like the one subplot because it's so ancillary, so off to the side that you could literally just cut all of it from the movie and it would make no fucking difference other than that Andrew Garfield would only be in the movie for like 15 minutes in, out of costume if you cut right. that whole thing out. But it's like, yeah, so it has no core thematic structure, no core narrative structure, no focus no anything it is it literally feels like they wrote the script for four different spider-man movies threw them into like a paper shredder and then like constructed it out of the pieces like that's just what it feels like because it like scenes happen that like they just don't flow into one another that they feel like they're from different movies that don't affect one another there's no sense of build-up there's no sense of payoff it's just the movie just moves through these plot points to get to the end and then when it gets to the end, it, it has its what is supposed to be a big, tragic, dramatic moment. But then it even fails It fails that in every conceivable manner because it doesn't build up to that moment satisfactorily. And then it doesn't pay off that moment effectively in any way because it shoves like the entire denouement structure into the last five minutes... And so the, the, the payoff for the death is just useless. You just you, They completely wasted everything in this movie. Just everything was wasted because fundamentally the worst part of this movie by far to me is that it has no idea how to tell a story in a way that I've never seen a movie do. It is shameful that there are people who can call themselves professionals. People who were paid to write a screenplay that is this fucking pathetic. I, I agree with every inch of that. It's what I kind of tried to say in my review, but you can't express that kind of anger in writing, I don't think. Yeah. <laughs> but no, it's like, I agree, and I 
you put your you put your finger on it exactly, which is that I just started seeing it and it was like I've never seen anything like this at all. This yeah. is so amateurish. This is so poorly done. And I agree that the whole professionals should not put their names on this. But you know who wrote this? This is Alex Kurtzman yeah. and Roberto Orki, who I think and have like always two been... other people that I don't know yeah. like what the story was behind it. But I, when I saw it at the end of the movie, it's like, oh, there's those two guys and two other writers. Maybe that explains some of it. It's like, well, but here's the thing: I think Kurtzman and Orki have always been dreadful, terrible, god awful writers. But not like this. They wrote Transformers Two, Sean. But that's I know. But that's what I'm saying. The Transformers Two is awful. But at least I can call it a story. Like, I literally can't... Like, if you ask me to explain the plot to Amazing Spider-Man 2, I can't do it. Because there's four different fucking plots. Transformers 2 didn't have that problem. As I, This is the like third paragraph of my review. This is where I would normally talk a little bit about the film's story. But with <laughs> Amazing Spider-Man 2, there is no cohesive narrative to discuss. Exactly! There just isn't. It doesn't have a fucking plot. What it, and, and what it ends up feeling like is it's just the movie spinning its wheels for two hours. Yeah. And then it ends, and it's like, it's just, it's a placeholder movie. And it's a placeholder full of shit and a nonsensical garbage. And I just, and it, it's offensive to me as a fan because it's clearly, it's not trying to give us a good story. Yeah. It's not trying to give us a story whatsoever. It's not trying to give us interesting characters or interesting themes or interesting action or anything. It's just, they have to keep the cogs turning, the movie, you know, running through the projector so we can pay our, put our cash down and go yeah. see the movie. And that's it. They didn't want to give us anything. Yeah, and I've never, even the superhero movies I don't like. There's passion to them. Like I know you don't like Man sure. of Steel. I think yeah. they were trying to give you yeah. something. Yeah, like I don't think the, like Man of Steel did not feel like some like obligatory Superman movie as like a cash no. cow. Like I don't think that was it. And I don't think that about Ang Lee's Hulk, which I dislike. Yeah. I you know I don't think that about most of the superhero movies I dislike. I think usually they... The only one that would be a comparison to me for this is X-Men Origins Wolverine, which is sure. the closest I can come to Amazing Spider-Man 2, where it's, it's yeah, the same... Yeah, I haven't seen that one. Yeah, and it's got similar narrative problems, but not to this degree, because again... I can't imagine. I can't... I've never seen a movie with this level yeah. of narrative problem. The Wolverine movie at least has the through thread of him losing his memories. That's the plot. Sure, And yeah. getting that, that prequel element. That gives it a spine. It's a terrible spine. It's not well done, but it's a spine. Amazing Spider-Man 2 does not have any spine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, let's just, let's take one of the subplots and isolate it so we can talk about yeah. how... Like, yeah, we should isolate all the subplots. Because that's the only way you can talk about this movie, is to isolate the individual plots and talk about them individually, because they have nothing to do with one another. I mean, the thinnest one, by far, is Electro. Because you start yeah. out with Max. It's weird because it feels like that was. It feels like they started with a script that was a movie about Electro, and then they were like, yeah, no, and then they just cut half of that script off and then started making a new one, you know? Exactly. Because so he starts out, he's Max Dillon, it's Jamie Foxx, and I feel so bad for Jamie Foxx because you can <laughs> yeah. tell he's trying. And I can also tell that with a better script, better version of this, he could be great. He, yeah. he really has a determination to try to make this character interesting, but instead he comes across as ungodly creepy. Yeah, he's like... I, I don't understand that choice at all of this backstory. It's the Riddler from Batman yeah. Forever. It's He becomes obsessed with the superhero, and he tries to kind of make himself like him, and then an accident happens, and he starts hating the superhero for no reason. So yeah. we start out, he gets rescued by Superman, then the next Spider -Man. scene... Spider-Man. Yes, said Superman. Spider-Man. He might as well be Superman. It's more, he is, he is legitimately more like Superman than he is Spider-Man. So if you want to just call him Spider-Man or Superman, Except I'm fine Superman with isn't a selfish dick. 
Yeah, but like, you know, at least Superman has like some of those elements of destiny and he's more of this like archetypal I agree, character okay. that doesn't make mistakes, you know. So we start so anyway, the next the first big Max Dillon scene is he's in his apartment on his birthday talking to himself like he's talking to Spider-Man and I legitimately yeah. all I could imagine through that whole scene was him in his bedroom jacking off. That's like yeah, that's what you get like he seems like this he's this stalker Creepy, like serial killer dude. Like, like that's what he feels. He's like. in the bathroom, whacking it, talking to himself like he's Spider Man. Yeah, like oh, Spider Man, do that, do that some more. It's like it's so fucking creepy. He's webbing up his apartment. <laughs> he is exactly, and it's just it's so fucked up. And then he gets to work, and and other people are mad. It's just it's the most bullshit archetypal garbage of like he's got a boss who's mean. Uh, yeah, like and what a waste of Al- like B J Novak as Alistair Smythe. Like yeah. Why did you even name him that character? Like, he has no resemblance to that character from the comics. And why would you hire a guy like B.J. Novak who can act? Who's yeah. a legitimate actor? He's funny, you know? Yeah, he's, yeah and he's a funny guy. Like, yeah. why do you cast him as generic corporate bad guy? Like, how, who made that casting choice? Like, there's a thousand different actors that you can just pluck out to be generic corporate bad guy who all they play is generic corporate bad guy. B.J. Novak is, like, at the very bottom of that fucking list, you know? Exactly. So, you've got all that, and then he. F- the, the, so it's it's just it's this is the other thing is that within these subplots everything is constructed from the most basic lame storytelling tropes. Sure. So it's Max Dillon, he's frustrated at work, grr, and that's it. Yeah, that's his whole arc. And and then he falls into the eel pit in a terrible terrible sequence that is <laughs> completely contrived on coincidence. Yeah. and douchebaggery on the part of Alistair Smythe, and then. Here's one of the weird things where you were talking about how the movie just cuts in weird ways. Yeah. He falls into the eel pit, and we don't see him for 20 minutes. Yeah, exactly, because it has to, like, catch up with all of its other, with the Gwen Stacy relationship and Harry Osborn. So it's like, well, now that we've done our obligatory supervillain origin, we're going to not address this, how this happened, and just, like, move on to other shit to talk about. And then when we go back to this movie, <laughs> we're going to show what Electro's doing. So Electro doesn't show up again until Times Square. Yeah. And... You were you and I were talking before we recorded this about yeah. how you thought the Times Square sequence had some nuggets of interesting stuff in it, and yeah. I agree. I think there's like one of the things I I like that they didn't go far enough with. It's it's really out of character, I think, in a lot of ways. But in a better movie, it would have been in character and interesting. Is Spider Man trying to talk him down? Yeah, yeah. Like in a better movie, that would be so cool. But the other thing is the way they set up Max Dillon and Electro and all this. I don't believe for a second he would turn against Spider-Man. Yeah, exactly. Especially, like, the only way I could see... Which is something they should have done. This is is starting to get into, like, Spider-Man adaptation stuff. But there are a lot of different villains in which, like, Spider-Man makes these mistakes where he jumps in too quickly. Because he's too hot-headed, he's too much... He's thinking too much about all the other shit that's going on in his life, and he just sees someone with, like, electric powers, and he just goes right in... And attacks them like that's actually that's how spectacular Spider-Man does Electro. Yeah, and and that's what causes the problem is that Spider-Man goes in and just assumes that this situation is what it looks like on the face of things and starts punching people instead of trying to you know find a peaceful solution to something because he's angry or whatever's going on in his life. And this is this is will go like go I will go into a lot more detail on this, but this is one of the many instances in which they make the most fundamental mistake. This is they make the most fundamental mistake with Peter Parker's character in that they do not let Peter Parker make any mistakes in this movie whatsoever. So he has no character arc. He has nothing to learn from. He is just a static, cool guy, basically, Except, for this whole movie. 
he. But the weird thing is, I think he makes a lot of mistakes. But the film but is he, contrived yeah, he, in yeah, a way. He's, he's, yeah, he, he. The character from our perspective, we can say he makes mistakes within the context of the right. cinematic cinematic universe. He doesn't because there's no consequences from it. Well, that's what time, I was. Yeah. That's what I was trying to say is that there's this. There's this really toxic and disgusting morality to the film where Peter can just get away with whatever he wants and it's okay because he's Spider-Man, rah, rah, rah. Yeah, and he's really cool for some reason. Yeah, and the and the Electro scene is part of that where it's, you know, he... But, I mean, the whole scene is weird because he, he does the right thing in trying to talk him down. Yeah, but, but it Electro, doesn't... But, like, because Electro just needs to be a villain, he just becomes a villain without it making yeah. any sense. So it's like... You either had to do something else for Spider-Man to try to talk him down and then still make it seem like, okay, yeah, but Electro would never buy it. Maybe have Electro hate Spider-Man from the start. Maybe, like, he thinks it's Spider-Man's fault that he has lightning powers. Like, you could have done so many things to still have that scene and have it make sense. Or you have Spider-Man do the thing where he swings in and starts to throw in fists when he shouldn't. Like, you have two choices. You can't do both of them at the same time. Yeah, they try to do both. Yes, they try to do both, and given what we know about Max Dillon, all he wants in the world is Spider-Man's approval. He gets it, and then he turns evil! For no reason! No reason whatsoever. There's no motivation given beyond someone else shoots him, so he hates Spider-Man, but Spider-Man didn't shoot him, and he knows full well that Spider-Man didn't shoot him. Yeah, like, he can see Spider-Man yelling, like, everybody, nobody shoot, I will take care of this. And so then when someone shoots, he's just like, well, this is obviously your fault, Spider-Man. You're the one who told them not to shoot, and then they shot me. And then there's this, there's this other weird kind of underlying arc there where they try to make it seem like what triggers it is Spider-Man gets on the TV instead of him, and he's like, no, I'm mad because you're famous, Spider-Man, but I wanted to be famous. But Which is never up. set up! It's never set up! It's just like, it doesn't feel like he wants to have everyone's attention. He just wants Spider-Man's attention. Yeah, he wants some attention. He doesn't want to be invisible. But there's a difference between not wanting to be invisible and being And being mad. like a glory hound. Like, right. that's what it feels like that they were setting him up as, which isn't his fucking character. No. Within the movie. We're not talking yeah, about... Yeah, like, yeah. ignore... Like, I don't give a fuck about Elektra. Like, Elektra is one of the last villains I would put in a Spider-Man movie. So, if so, I don't give a fuck about how they, like, did not... This is not anything like any Elektra I've ever seen. Whatever. But... If you're going to make your own character, make your own fucking character, you know? Like, don't just make this hodgepodge of, like, different motivations from, like, different versions of this character that just, like, come together whenever it's convenient for you to make your fucking action scene. Yeah. So, anyway, that whole action, that whole scene, though, the Times Square sequence, I I hated it. I thought there's this really weird stop-start quality to it where, like, Electro, they're gearing up for a fight, it goes away. They're gearing up, it goes away. Fight starts, and then it, like... Dissipates for a couple minutes while Spider-Man's dealing with something else. Then it comes back up and then it ends with Spider-Man spraying him with a hose. What the? F- that yeah. doesn't even make sense. Yeah. And and they re- and then and then Electro's yeah. out of the movie for the majority of the rest of the film. And then when he comes back, he just he like he he all of a sudden becomes a subvillain. You know, he was set up for like the first half of the movie as like this is going to Electro is going to be the main villain. And then as soon as he gets captured, it's like. He becomes completely subservient to Harry Osborn, and Harry Osborn becomes the primary antagonist in the movie. Like, when the fuck did that happen? Ugh. Yeah. 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 So, and then, yeah, so he finally, he, we've got a couple scenes with him in, in the jail, which is stupid, where he makes... Oh, God. And there's this other... Ravencroft. Who... What the fuck did they do? Who was that Nazi guy? I've read the comics, and it was something that, like, after that happened, I was like... There is no crazy, like, German Nazi mad scientist character that's not a character that exists, and he's not from Ravencroft. Like, Ravencroft is not some crazy 
Oscorp research facility in the comics that's like a legitimate like asylum and mental institution, you know? And then I looked up and it was like the character he's he's supposed to be is a character called Dr. Ashley Kafka, who's a character from the comics who is like this really nice woman who's like who runs the Ravencroft Institute and is actually trying to help people. And then also, then I saw that she recently, her character recently got killed in an issue of Superior Spider-Man. So I was like, well, thanks a lot, guy. It's like, here's this, like, nice little female character that's like, that's what we need is we need to take the precious few female characters we have in comics and then turn them into men in the movies. And then we need to make her a weird villain that comes out of nowhere that's this crazy Nazi. And then it's like, you, the character also recently died. So you just pissed all over this character from the comics. For no reason whatsoever. It didn't need to be Ravencroft. It didn't need to be Kafka. It but didn't ig- need to have any of this. Right. But ignoring all of that again, yeah. the comic side, the Ravencroft scenes in the movie are ridiculous because you've, it's this stop-start mentality again yeah. where you go in and you have Electro make this big series of threats. And it feels like he's about to break out and go do something. Yeah, which he, it seems like he very easily could do with right. how powerful they make him in this movie. But then it's buzz and they put him back yeah. in the water. Which, apparently he can breathe underwater. Um... They don't explain yeah, that. That's true. Yeah. Uh, I don't know why water stops him in the way it does, mm-hmm. but I mean, I know water conducts electricity, but I but just, the water conducts electricity. I, like you probably should put him into some sort of insulator, right? If you want to stop electro, that's what I would do. I know. Least. So I'm no fucking scientist. But. And that's the other thing is they keep setting up electro as like the most powerful villain in any superhero movie ever, yeah. and then Spider-Man beats him with a hose, and then at the <laughs> end, Spider, and then Gwen beats him by hitting a red button. That yeah. only she can press because she's smarter than Peter. Yeah, exactly. Because she's seen the schematics. This woman who is a fucking, you know, she who was the, like, top intern for Dr. Connors, a geneticist, a fucking biologist, apparently she's an electrical engineer. I had no idea how incredible that she's able to operate on her own this state-of-the-art, brand-new fucking power generation facility in New York. Like, that's really impressive for a biologist. Well, anyway... Harry comes and lets Electro out, yeah. and then they go around, and there's some really awful scenes where they're like the dynamic evil duo, and it's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. It's 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 such a weird pairing. Like it's like them a, together. It's a vastly less entertaining version of Mister Freeze and Poison Ivy. Sure, yeah. but you know what? Mister Freeze and Poison Ivy and Batman and Robin were entertaining. Yeah, yeah. because Uma Thurman knew she was in a bad movie, and she was having fun with it. Yeah, <laughs> but anyway. Uh, so yeah, finally then Electro is at the power plant and Spider-Man comes in and Gwen hits a red button and that's it. And he's dead. Yeah, and, he's, and they killed him. Like, he literally is dead. And, and Peter doesn't seem to give a fuck. And that's, yeah, that's, I love this new trend in superhero movies where a superhero kills off the villain. At least Man of Steel had Superman go, ah, after he killed Zod, you know? Like, at least Spider-Man could, like, give half a fuck that he just obliterated this dude, you know? Spider-Man doesn't give a fuck about a lot of stuff in this yeah, movie. But yeah, he's not Spider-Man. So that's Electro's whole story. <laughs> it's not even a story. It's just... <laughs> and, and here's the thing is, I was thinking about this too, that like, part of his whole motivation is supposed to be that he... and they Because they, they do this so terribly. That his motivation is supposed to be that like, he designed that power generation facility that they're in at the end, but then Oscorp basically stole it from him. Like, that's... But they say that, like, twice. And it's like, you know what would be what you need to do if that's going to be your character motivation? You know it would have been a better start to your fucking movie rather than fucking around with this subplot that does nothing for the whole movie? Maybe the start is you have a flashback scene that shows Max Dillon getting fucked over by Oscorp so we can be feel sympathetic for him instead of just, like, having BJ Novak tell us 
yeah, I, I stole your plans. Ha ha ha. You, that's not your facility. It's like, but that's a trend all over the movie. Is that yeah. it's, it's telling rather than showing. Yeah. It's, they just tell us the character motivation. It's a stupid motivation. And then they move on. Yeah, and then even on top of that, it's, you never get the sense that Max Dillon as a character would be is smart enough to design that facility. Like, he feels like he's a repairman, which is like he is. Instead yeah. of being, you know, this, like, genius electrical engineer who devises this, like, new form of Transformer or whatever the fuck he yeah. does to make this new power facility. I know the world is an unfair place, but if he actually designed that, he would have a better job. Yeah, like, he could go do other shit. Like, yeah. he would not be the dude... That Alistair Smythe then tells, like, go repair the cables in the open vat of electric eels room that we just have in the batch, you know? Oh, God. I plot, <laughs> it's, so it's all plot holes. But yeah. let's... Speaking of show, of telling versus showing, let's talk about Harry Osborn. All right, let's, let's talk about that. Because plot. it's a perfect example of that. Norman Osborn's one scene in the movie oh. where they got Chris Cooper in the worst death makeup... And, and Harry comes in, and this is... It's the exposition the scene. Their conversation together. It's like, you are my son, and I am dying. I am your son, and you send me away to a boarding school. And it's like, you have this disease, and here's the stuff to fix it. It's like, I hate you, but I'm going to do this anyways. It's like, okay, end scene. It's like, great. Let's just tell... Let's just yell our backstories and character motivations at each other. Okay. Exactly. So, again, <laughs> so we're not... Shitty. We're not seeing any of the backstory. They just tell us it. And then we're done. And then Norman Osborn's dead. We cart him it's off. It's like, it feels like the only reason Norman Osborn is in this movie at all is because they didn't set up Harry in the first movie. So they need to have a quick scene which just tells us who this Harry Osborn is. And then he just dies. And, alright. And so, <laughs> in the Harry Osborn plot, we get into problems much bigger than anything with Electro. Because we start yeah. with this issue of telling versus showing. We're told these things about Harry. We set him up in the most cursory of ways, just totally perfunctory. But then the most, honestly, the most baffling stuff in this movie to me comes when Peter comes by, and apparently they're friends. Yeah. But all we are told is just they say they're friends, they have no chemistry together. Yeah. There's, there's no way they're friends, because Peter made multiple trips to Oscorp in the last movie. Yeah, and didn't say anything. Yeah. Like, how the fuck? It would have been so easy to set Harry Osborn up in the first movie. Like, I don't think this is a good way to use Harry Osborn. This character has no resemblance of Harry Osborn no. from the comics. But, like, you still need to fucking set him up. Like, you can't just put this character and be like, Hey, we're best childhood friends from when, like, we were friends when we were, like, nine years old. It's like, that's not... And it's so... How would you even... You wouldn't even be able to recognize each other. You wouldn't be friends anymore So this is where, Yes, so this is where we get into the bigger problems. It's where we're told something, and then what we actually see in the movie contradicts it utterly. Yeah, like, if anybody who has a logical reasoning mind just immediately deconstructs what the movie tells you, it's just like, that makes no fucking sense. Like, it's just stupid. Yeah, but, I mean, even on a more basic level, just look at Andrew Garfield and Dane DeHaan in one of their bad scenes together and tell me, do they look at all like people who are friends? Let alone, I mean, people who have ever met each other. I mean, they just... Yeah, like, they're in from completely different worlds. And I get, like, that's how it is in the comics, too, but it's like... The comics kind of explains it, and Peter has a relationship with with Terry and his family. It's like, makes sense. It's like, how did Peter Parker, this dude who's, you know, this kid from Queens whose family is incredibly poor, which doesn't make any sense because his family in this movie is like fucking top geneticist and like all that nonsense, but whatever. He, his family doesn't have like any money. How is he best friends with Harry fucking Osborn, who's the heir to the great Oscorp empire, you know? 
And how did that happen? That would be an interesting story to tell. And there's nothing about Harry Osborne as Dane DeHaan plays him or as he's written to imply that he could ever have friends. He doesn't yeah. seem like he has that kind of personality. Yeah. There's none of that shorthand that friends have. And if you've ever had a friend, which means you are a yeah. human fucking being, <laughs> yeah. then you'll know it's just false and doesn't make sense. Yeah. And then we get to stuff later in the movie where, like, you know, Peter thinks Harry's in a bad place, and he says to Gwen, but Gwen, he's my best bud, I gotta help him out. And I'm like, no, he's not! You haven't seen him in, like, ten years! You haven't seen him since, like, you were a little shit! in diapers man like what the fuck how is he your best friend so they say stuff like that and it's like no clearly he is not your movie does not yeah, back you're up. talking about the Harry Osborn in the Sam Raimi movies motherfuckers like what are you doing god I mean you know just compare this to how Harry Osborn was not necessarily well used in Spider-Man 3 yeah. but their friendship actually had a weight to that movie yeah. and it's a good spine to that movie and it follows through so Spider-Man 3 is a similar problem to Electro in this movie where they introduce Harry as the Hobgoblin in the first like yeah. one of the first scenes and then he's kind of gone until the last scene as Hobgoblin but Harry has a presence and he's a spine to that movie yeah Spider-Man 3 is vastly better structured than this oh god yes Spider-Man 3 is Citizen Kane compared to this <laughs> it basically is it's just like the problems with Amazing Spider-Man 2 are like if the most hyperbolic criticisms of Spider-Man 3 were actually true about yes. a movie you know I know, I mean, we'll talk about that later in the comparisons, but yeah. it's like, God. So anyway, we have all this awful stuff with Harry Osborn, and I think it, Dane DeHaan is the worst performance in this movie. It's just True, big yeah. and over the top, and he's just just an utter scumbag completely, and that's his only note. That's his only note, yeah. sleazeball. And so he goes through the movie like this, every scene is just, it's nails on a chalkboard. I wanted to kill myself every time he was on screen. And he just kind of goes in circles and he's mad. And his one motivation... This is where we get into it again. Stupid character motivations. <laughs> yes. Is he's dying and he wants Spider-Man's blood. That's it. Yeah. That's it. That's his and, whole movie. And, and there's so much wrong. There's so much wrong with that character motivation. The biggest one, the one that baffled me the whole time was just like... Norman Osborn just died and he looked like he was like 60. Like 50 or 60 years old. Yes. You were like 20. Dude, you've got like... 30 years what's the big fucking deal like there are tons of people on the planet that are in like this exact same situation you are in this is not that special or unique it's like it's like if someone found out they had the marker for Huntington's disease and decided they had to kill the president exactly it is like I'm going to like kill the president and drink his blood because that's the only thing that can save my life it's like what because the president doesn't have Huntington's disease so (laughs) I doesn't like Dude, you have, like, 30 years. You are the head of, like, the most powerful genetics research facility in the entire world. Your father has been working on this problem for his entire life and has given you all of his research. You're, you, you'll just be able to fix it. You'll be able to fucking fix it. It's not that big a deal. Like, you will be able to solve this thing. You don't need to go fucking insane like you're going to die tomorrow. It's like, if you want to do that... You need, like, one scene, which is, like, a doctor coming in and telling him, it's like, oh, this disease affects different people differently. I'm sorry, Harry, you're dying at an accelerated rate, like, you could die a month from now or something. You know, that would be still stretching the realms of plausibility. But you need to do something, because the audience is just going to assume he has the same disease. That means he'll probably die about the same point in his life, which means... He's fucking fine. <laughs> like, it would mean he had a full and happy, like, 80-year-old life. Exactly. Like, it's not... 
it's not crazy. Like, there's no reason for him to freak the fuck out. And he freaks the fuck out for this whole movie. And then, even then, so he freaks the fuck out. It's weird. But also, all the scenes between him and Peter are so strange because in between the movies, Peter is now with the Daily Bugle, but it's just like this yeah, weird yeah, little Yeah, they just mention it. And it's so cursory, but it's also the it, everything in Harry's subplot hinges on it. Yeah. Because he has to get Peter to go find Spider-Man, and then, you know, Spider-Man comes yeah, by. Because you took a picture of this person so you can find him. And the other weird thing was, like, half of that scene, it felt like the dialogue implied that Harry knew, really knew that Peter was Spider-Man, which right. would not be hard to figure out no. in all honesty, especially well, if you're the head of Oscorp. Again, it's a, it's a point I made last week talking about Tobey Maguire versus Andrew Garfield, is yeah. you would never look at Tobey Maguire and say he's Spider-Man. Yeah. You would look at Andrew Garfield and be like, he's tall, he's handsome, he's cool, yeah, he's probably yeah. Spider-Man. And like, all the like shit he's done, like with, like in the first movie where like he, when he's bullied, he like breaks the fucking backboard and all that shit. Yeah. He's clearly, he's obviously Spider-Man. Like, especially yeah. again, if you're the head of Oscorp and you have like security footage of Peter sneaking in and all this nonsense and going into the spider room which well, of course there'd be footage of that well and you know there's there's been a lot of discussion online there was that big scene in all the trailers where Harry was like Oscorp has had you under surveillance yeah and there's been a lot of discussion online about why was that cut out well the answer is there are always scenes in trailers that are cut out yeah but it does but seem it seems to indicate like there's here, especially yeah. a lot with these movies yes like you know Amazing Spider-Man 1 had all of like or almost all of like that parent shit cut Just out cut to out, be yeah. stuffed into this movie which is the, what a fantastic decision that was yeah and and so Amazing Spider-Man one and two get to feel unfinished. Yeah, they, but like, no, they, it's, it's the biggest flaw with Amazing Spider-Man one is that they just like so many plots of that movie just feel like like characters just disappear and like plots go nowhere. But at least that movie still has like a core plot that still yes. goes somewhere. Well, and so, but anyway, the whole thing with that cut out material in this yeah. movie with Harry and Peter is that that scene without that stuff in there plays as just. Like, it makes no sense. Yeah. Instead of being just ambiguous, which I think is what they were going for, but it's not ambiguous, it's nonsensical. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <sighs> so, then I don't even... It's just, it's so weird. Because Spider-Man says, Harry, I'm sorry, I can't give you my blood. And even his motivations yeah, don't make for total really sense. for really no justified reason. Because no. Peter... Because the because this is, like, the one thing, weirdly enough, the only thing that the entire Richard Parker parent thing does to the, like, anything else in the movie is that it provides an explanation for why the Spider-Venom turns Harry into a Green Goblin-like creature at the end of the movie, because... Peter is the chosen Yeah, because, because Richard Parker designed the, the serum to only work on him or his direct heirs, for whatever reason. Because... <laughs> there's a lot of stuff that Richard Parker did. So in case I die, a lot of people can die, too. <laughs> but anyways, yeah, so he did... So, But that happens after... Peter refuses to give Harry his blood. So Peter has no idea that giving, that allowing Harry to have, like get the spider venom would seriously fuck him up. For all Peter knows, it would make him another Spider-Man, basically. Like, so Peter, but it, you could totally, if you had like written some scenes and shit that talked about this, you could totally make up a reasonable justification for why Spider-Man would refuse to help Harry on the grounds of like, I don't know what this blood is going to do. Like, like me becoming Spider-Man was a one in a million chance. This will probably kill you. I can't do this. Like, you still got like thirty years to live to figure this out with like the most powerful genetics corporation at your back, Harry. You could probably figure out another fucking thing to do this. So I'm not going to just give you my poison spider blood right now. But they didn't have any of that. So instead, it's just Harry's like, I can't give him, or Peter's like, I can't give him my blood. 
but he's my best friend. So I'm just going to go over there and tell him that I can't give him my blood. And then I'm just going to leave. And it's like, well, that's great. Great. You've solved everything for no satisfactory explained reason. You've just done all this shit that just to make Harry... Again, it just feels like it's done to make Harry a villain by the end of the movie. Yes. Without so, coming up with any reason for it to happen. Right. So at that point he goes insane and then Oscorp screws him over because that's what Oscorp does. There's no motivation for it. Yeah. And then he goes and frees... Uh, somehow he breaks into Ravencroft with one gun. Yeah, apparently, like apparently, you know, he is a fucking you know ninja. S- yeah, agent of Shield or something because he like goes up to these two trained guards of this fucking psychological facility or whatever that is getting like owned by Oscorp and used for crazy genetic experiments. So these guys are probably pretty good security guards that you would want to hire. And he's able to like disarm both of them, like steal their fucking taser and stun them. It's like, how the fuck did Harry Osborn just do that? But you know, whatever, he needs to be able to get into the facility again without any satisfactorily explained reason. You need this to happen. Like this is the whole like structure of the movie until you get to the very end. Is it's just like feels like they just want to get to the point where Harry Osborn kills Gwen Stacy because that's kind of a thing that happened in the comics. At least Except Gwen Stacy really. died yeah. in the comics. So to get to that point. You have to ha- move all of these pieces into all these places, but you didn't bother to create a fucking plot that does it, so you just have it happen to get to that point. It's like what you said, like, the movie just spins its wheels. That's exactly what it is. It just spins its wheels, moving through obligatory plot points without establishing any character development, any character motivation, without establishing plot points that make sense just to arrive at the end of the movie, which, hey, guess what? If you do that, that makes the death of Gwen Stacy seem completely perfunctory and non-affecting in any way whatsoever, and so we'll you just get- waste it all. We'll get to that. Yeah. I have words for that. Yeah. But we'll get oh, to it. Oh, I do. Oh, we both do, I yeah. think. I think we're going to take some turns on this. <laughs> sure. <laughs> All right. So, yes. Anyway, um, so he frees Electro, and then they go to Oscorp. And there's the, the weirdest scene in the whole movie to me is when they've got the guy from Oscorp, and, and Peter's, or Harry's just got a gun, and Electro's behind him, and it's Yeah, it is. There's that weird <laughs> shot where it's like after they knock him out, and he wakes up, and it's like kind of from his perspective. It's like Harry and Electro standing over him, and Harry pointing a gun in his face. It's like, what the fuck is this? It's like, it's like this weird, there's that one shot, that great shot at the end of Avengers where Loki's taken out, and all the Avengers are standing over him, and Hawkeye's like poking his, pointing his bow at him, and it's like, it's, yeah, it's awesome. It's like that with like these two weird characters. They're it's basically so goofy. They're like they, it suddenly becomes they're trying to do Tarantino Reservoir Dogs. Exactly. Like yeah. it feels like there's this weird alternate reality Harry Osborne and Electro Buddy Cop movie or something. It's so fucking weird. And Dane DeHaan is still really awful, and it's just really hammy. And, and I also love that in this scene because they have they, he captures that like the basically. The guy who's, he's not literally the CEO of Oscorp, but he's like basically it because it's like he's the one who fucks over Harry and does all that shit for really no satisfactorily, again, satisfactorily explained reason. Like Harry finds out about the stuff that Oscorp is doing. He's like, well, we're just going to kick you out. Instead of just like, I'm killing him or capturing him or like disabling him or doing something else. It doesn't really make sense. So have that guy... But so Harry gets the gun and then tells him, take me to the secret bunker or whatever where the spider venom is. And then Electro just fucking bounces out of there. With Electro, who is Harry's muscle. So Harry has this gun, but they walk through, like, all of the Oscorp facility to get down to that secret basement. It's like, how did that guy not beat the shit out of Harry? I get Harry has the gun. Harry doesn't know how to use a gun. Like, he's an 18-year-old fucking, like, trust fund kid. You know, like, yeah, he doesn't know anything about fighting. I mean, maybe he does, but, like, he shouldn't. 
that dude looks like he could beat the fucking shit out of him. And there's all these security guards. You're the one who owns Oscorp. Like, you're the one who's running the fucking place. How is he not able to disable Harry? It makes no sense. Jack Bauer like, does it on 24 every week. Someone's exactly. got a gun on him, he just flips around and breaks their neck. Exactly. It's easy. Kiefer Sutherland showed me how to do it. I'm just saying, it was a really... I thought it was just so silly that, like... Harry just tells Electro, it's like, okay, you can just leave now. It's like, what do you mean you didn't... Why would you have Electro leave before you go get the thing that you're looking for? I forgot to say one thing about Electro. Yeah. Do you like how in this part of the movie he becomes the neon powers from Infamous Second Son? Yeah, it is kind of fun. Like, Electro has that where he can, like, travel along, like, uh, power lines and stuff. So when he, like, does the teleport stuff, kind of makes sense. But what I thought was really funny is that they have put Electro in this weird... Rubber suit? Suit. That, like, I'm not entirely sure where it really came from, and he just kind of has it? He imagined it. <laughs> yeah, like, is he able to just... Because, you know, I get that it's a, like a, you know, it's a PG-13 movie or whatever it is, so you can't have him be naked like Watchmen Penis. Had Watchmen. <laughs> but there is always that, like, weird thing where he, like, disintegrates himself into, like, an electro, like electromagnetic whatever and, like, teleports basically to places. And when he reassimilates... He just has his clothes. It's like, is he able to just generate electric clothes? It's like, because again, that suit is not explained where he gets that from. Maybe it's like in the most recent episode of Doctor Who where the Doctor was projecting clothes telepathically. Yeah, exactly. Maybe that's what he does. Okay. Anyway. Hard light clothes or something. So then they get to that stupid bunker and the Green Goblin costume is just there for him. And he takes the Venom. No, and not... Oh, God. Well, no, I'll talk about this later with all the other shit. The Sinister Six suit. That's so there. stupid. So stupid. But anyway, so, so, so everything he I needs... dread the Sinister Six thing without Oh, God. Sound. But then, so basically he just... It's like, just add water superhero kit. He just puts the blood inside him. He gets on the glider and he's evil now. Yeah. And then he's got one more scene in the entire fucking movie. Yeah, which is the end. So they they like so he he is what we will just refer to as the Green Goblin, but he's not for, the Green Goblin for all of one scene yes. in the entire movie, and that and scene is it. and and I want to kind of hold off on getting to yeah. the end of all of these plots until yeah. we get to the point where they link, but it's so stupid how he just comes in. You're Peter Parker. I'm gonna kill Gwen Stacy. Fight, 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 fight. She's dead. Yeah, that's it. And it's it's not hard for Peter to beat the Green Goblin. He's a fucking weakling compared to Spider Man. Yeah. So yeah, it's not it's a such, It is just like, yeah, they're... Everything about it is stupid. Yeah, it's a complete waste of the character. And then he, he turns to the camera and says, Hey, everyone, Sinister Six, coming in two years yeah. or whatever. It's just an advertisement for the next movie. That's mm-hmm. what his scenes at the end are. Yeah. Let's flash back a little bit. Okay. Next subplot to talk about is... <laughs> the third plot in the movie. Let's talk about Richard Parker a little bit. Okay, we're I want to end with Peter and Gwen. Okay, that makes sense, because that leads into yes. that stuff. Um, all right. So, Richard Parker, what is, for me... Honestly, the most baffling part of the whole movie, again, because one, this is stuff that this is this is totally unique. This is not stuff from the comics. Like like they did expand on Peter Parker's parents in the comics. It was stupid when they did it because it was like they were agents of Shield and bullshit. It was dumb. And eventually they come back as life model decoys and then they die as life model decoys. It's all nonsense. The parents stuff in Spider-Man has always been really bad. There has never been a single good story that utilized like heavily the parent stuff there's there are good stories that happen when the parents are back as life model decoys but they have nothing to do with the parents so it's like you are you are treading shit ground you know you're you are up shit creek with the storyline because there's nothing good no spider-man writer in fucking 50 years has found a good peter parker parent story so you fucked up you fucked up already basically by by doing putting this into the movie with the spider-man movie but on top of that, 
It has. It is so useless. It is one of the most useless subplots I've ever seen in a whole movie because it has nothing to do with Gwen Stacy. It has nothing to do with Electro. The only thing it has to do with Harry Osborn is that Richard Parker worked for Oscorp, and that's it. And that's like, and I guess he designed the serum, but it's like Harry Osborn never interacts with like the Richard Parker stuff, like really in any way, other than he gets affected by this one plot point they drop. That is, they spend like forty-five minutes of the movie to drop this one plot point that is a dumb plot point that Peter Parker is the only person who can be Spider-Man. That's it. That's they spend like they they waste the opening of the movie. To set up that one plot point. Like, in the opening of your movie, which is hugely important. You know, like, what did Captain America 2 do with its opening? It established, like, Steve Rogers again. It set up the relationship with Falcon, and then it sent him off to a cool action scene. That's the first thing that happens in Captain America 2. The first thing that happens in Amazing Spider-Man 2 is you have, like, a ten-minute sequence of Richard Parker and Mary Parker... Going on a plane and fighting on this plane, doing this really like cliche sort of James Bondy action scene, that then amounts to nothing for the entire movie. Yes, it's which terrible. is such. It's just such a waste. You know, when you call a movie economic and how it uses its time, it's like the exact opposite of that. It's uneconomic. It's uneconomic in the most unimaginable degree. And and again, on just a filmmaking level, all the stuff with Peter looking for the secrets of his parents, it's so poorly done because it comes out of nowhere. Yeah. Like they kind of drop that in Amazing Spider Man one, but you also yeah, get the totally sense do. But they, you also get the sense what they're going for in that movie is that he kind of he gets over it, he's past it. He, yeah, that he at realizes the end, it's not that important. It's not that important, but so, for some reason, just out of the blue, there's that scene where he's at home and he's trying to go to sleep and he can't, so he starts making the weird conspiracy wall. Yeah. And it's just with, like this weird like music montage that does not fit with the tone no. of the scene at all. No, like, what the fuck? So that's fucking terrible. Yeah. That's just stupid. And he gets all angsty about this. And then you have, to me, what is one of the worst scenes in the movie because it takes two of your best actors and just strangles them to death. So you have Sally Field as Aunt May come in, who, God bless her heart, she's trying. Mm-hmm. She's trying so hard. And you know, I rewatched Amazing Spider-Man one, and I think she's good in that. She's yeah. She's a good at that part. She's not in it a whole lot, but she's good when she is. Yeah, like there's those scenes, like there's that really good scene at the end of Amazing Spider-Man 1 where he brings the eggs. Yeah. That's just this nice silent exchange. But here, I mean, before this scene I'm talking about, there's a bunch of really annoying Aunt May scenes with him and Peter where Peter is just an ass to her. Yeah. And she, he's just mouthing off. And it's supposed to be cute and flippant, but it's not. It's just, he's being a dick. Yeah. And she's being stupid and she doesn't, it's just dumb. And then we get to this scene where he's trying to ask her about his dad and she goes on this whole rant out of fucking nowhere about how she's his mother so he doesn't get to know about his parents. Yeah, it's just like, what? When you break that apart, it's horrible. It's like, like, what are you, what are you saying? Like, why are you saying this? Like, and then, what? And then poor Andrew Garfield has to be like, I'm sorry, Aunt May. I really do. I love you. And it's like this really overbearing thing. Yeah. And he finally gets her to fess up. And then what she fesses up isn't all that bad anyway. Yeah, that it's, it is something that's just obviously... Not true, which is yeah. that, that she tells him that Richard Parker was like a traitor to the United States government or whatever and like stole all the money and all this nonsense, which Peter basically like just knows isn't true based on all the stuff he's learned about his father. But he and, like Dr. It. Connors in the first movie. Yeah, he basically is like, oh, this is, oh, God damn it, I'm going to be really angsty about this because that's, that is what this subplot does. All it provides consistently is just an excuse for Peter Parker to be angsty in these scenes. Just yeah, to, but like, not make in... you feel... To try to make you feel sympathetic for him, but not for any good reason. 
Exactly. So this is what I wanted to go with on, on Peter's story. Because this subplot is basically all Peter Parker has to do outside of Gwen Stacy. Yeah. And, and fighting so, people. And what's so weird is that so in these isolated scenes dealing with Richard Parker, he's angsty and sad about it. But then he'll jump to a scene with Gwen and he's fine. Like it yeah. never happened. Mm-hmm. Or he'll jump to a scene where he's Spider-Man and it hasn't happened. And it's like, so they're one, they're like, oh yeah, you know what? In most movies, Spider-Man, he's kind of sad because his life is hard. We're not making it look like his life is hard. We're not showing him having any other responsibilities at all. Yeah. He's a fucking lazy bum in this movie. And and so what are we going to have him do? Okay, he's going to be sad about his dad, but only in the scenes where we can fit it in. Yeah. You know, and you know what really fucking pisses me off is that he is all like... All of this? Yeah, I mean all of this. But particularly about this is that he is like a million times more... Concerned about what happened to his father who died when Peter was like six. His father that he effectively barely even can remember. Then Uncle Ben who died like a year ago. Yes. You know? It's like, what? Like, what about Uncle Ben? Who's like the person who, like in an actual Spider-Man story, you are torn up the fuck about because who died because it's basically your fucking fault and it, Kind of is an Amazing Spider-Man one. They don't make it as like obviously his fault. I actually think they do. I think it's much more his fault in Amazing Spider-Man one. I mean, it's not as powerful like, to me as like when he can just he just steps out of the way of the burglar. But but here's what I was gonna say. The entire reason in the in the Amazing Spider-Man one movie, the entire reason Uncle Ben goes out at night is because Peter is being a little fucking brat. That's the entire justification. Sure, but like it's not like it's Peter's been like using. I mean, it's all because he's fuck up Spider-Man in so many ways. But it's not like in, in actual Spider-Man, the whole point is that Peter's using his powers for selfish gains, which he is not really doing. That I mean, he kind of is with the bully, but it's like he's specifically doing it to get money. He's you know he's doing the whole wrestler thing and he's getting his money. And he's using his power to like to have like a power trip with it, and then but then when he gets kind of dicked over, the fact that he has been abusing his powers and allowing his power to corrupt him means that when he gets dicked over, now he's no longer capable of doing the right thing. And I think just like symbolically speaking, him stepping out of the way of the burglar and the burglar just walking past him, and like Spider Man standing there, he's in a position where it's like I can just physically stop this person and I'm just going to let them go is so much more powerful than like. Oh, I saw this guy robbing a cash register, and I'm not going to say anything. Okay, and then when the guy runs out of the the place, I'm just going to start walking away. And the dude's going to tell him instead of "Why didn't you stop him?" It's like "Why aren't you going after him?" It's like those are two completely different things. So right. they they fuck it up. They fuck it up. Like I I agree, they fuck it up. I'm just saying I think Peter comes across as more of a dick in Amazing Spider-Man One. Yeah, like, yeah. In, in a shitty way, in yes. a non-constructive way. Because again, and that's part of the thing about this movie is that this movie had an opportunity to fix that flaw in the first movie by building off of that and showing him have guilt over what happened to Uncle Ben instead of him just being generically angsty about what happened to his parents something that really has nothing to do with him yes exactly so, so it's, anyway, just a, it's just a waste of a storyline and then finally we get the stupid thing where he's got the coins in the calculator and he oh, goes God. and there's the train and it's just so dumb it's just like like how many ways can you break this down of like where it makes no sense so one <laughs> In the opening scene, like, what they're trying... What Richard and Mary are trying to do the whole time is upload something to Roosevelt. And they say Roosevelt a whole lot. And they're trying to upload some file. And then when you get to this part of the movie, what happens is you find out what they did is they uploaded... They uploaded a, like, video log of Richard, Richard Parker's making at the very beginning of the movie. That kind of calls back to the opening of Amazing Spider-Man 1... Where he, all he basically says, he just says what happened. It doesn't, like, show at any point that, like, he put in evidence 
of like that this actually occurred. It's just him saying, Oscorp dicked me over and I did all these things. I'm sorry. And it's like it's like a three minute video file that that's like that's what they were uploading to Roosevelt. It's not like this critically important evidence that's like we have to back this up somewhere. This is really important. Then on top of that, that's their last thing that they do is they upload that to Roosevelt. And how do you get there? How do you access what like you spent your dying moments like when your your like your wife who has been shot instead of you taking care of her and she's like no. Roosevelt, you have to upload it. Where did you upload it to? A secret underground lab in a rundown subway tunnel that's no longer used. There's a subway car that exists under the tracks. And how do you get there? You have like five subway tokens that you stuff inside of your calculator that you put inside your briefcase that you left in the basement of the Parker house. How is anyone... How is anyone ever supposed to find that? The only reason Peter gets there is because he is really angsty for no reason and throws the calculator against the wall and all the coins call, fall out and he's like, what are these? Roosevelt? I'm going to type up Roosevelt. I'm going to figure out like this ridiculous series of trails to get to this point to find a three minute video clip from my dad that is completely useless for like any practical means whatsoever. Why did they do that? That makes no sense on any level. It's so fucking stupid. Here's my question. Go. What the fuck year is this taking place in? I because know. 14 years ago, on a plane, they upload a video file. Yeah. You don't get internet on a plane now. What the hell's going on? I don't know. I don't... Like, how did Richard... Like, who the fuck... How did he fucking lab in a subway car under the, it's like on this like hydraulic system that like the, the, the tracks like go up and fold out and then the fucking subway car lifts up out of the fucking ground like was it not enough to use this secret subway rail track that's not used anymore just hide your lab down there no you need to f- come up with this entire thing for what for one computer with one video file that's like all they showed like it's the most needlessly complex, stupid fucking thing. Why would you spend your final moments and that's, like, the thing you are most concerned about? How did you not, like, you know, send that computer file to the United States government? Send it to, like, a billion of different places and leave, like, a trail that you know that, like, your family can follow. Not this weird thing that's, like, the only reason... Like, this guy, like, Richard Parker must have been really egotistical because the only way that anyone, that Peter would ever find out how to get to that fucking subway computer is if Peter is just so consumed by angst over the loss of his parents that he just has to destroy everything they owned. Characters on Game of Thrones, when they find out information, in an age without electricity, get the message out more effectively. There's a whole subplot in the first season of Game of Thrones more effective than this. It's so... Fucking stupid us on every level, you know? It's like, good God, it makes no sense. And again... That's where the subplot ends. Yeah, that's it. That's where it goes. And that, so all of that, again, all of that, all that it does is it does two things. It, it retcons this version of Spider-Man's origin that he is the only person who can become Spider-Man and it provides a plot point, a reason, which you could have done this in so many different ways, it's not even funny that you could have done this in like a million different ways. 
that did not require this much screen time to set up a reason that Harry taking the spider venom turns him into Green Goblin. That's like that's it. That's all. That's like all of what Peter Parker does in this whole fucking movie. Well, and here's the that's thing. what you spent the beginning of your movie on was this ridiculous series of unbelievable events to deliver two perfunctory plot points that could have been that one of them is just bad and another one could have been delivered in like a million different ways. You know where it could have been delivered? Where? The first movie. Yeah. Yeah, they, exactly. I, and I'm, the speculation when that first movie came out is that all this information was given in that movie. I'd read this yeah. entire story uh-huh. two years yeah, ago. Yeah. So what if it had been in there? Then when we get to this movie, he would have an automatic reason for not wanting to give his blood away. Yeah, exactly. You, all you would need to do is have like one fucking tiny little scene or part of a scene where you reiterate that information because Peter's thinking about it or something. Like that's yeah. all you would need to remind people that that's what happened. Gwen, hey, Peter, why don't you give him your blood? Hey, uh, Peter. Gwen, don't you remember what I told you that the lizard told me yes, in the last I movie? Can't, I can't do it. If I give him, like, I'm the only people of the Parker bloodline. It's, it's, but that would have just been, oh my god. Like, that would have been. so It's stupid. But, oh, but we can't talk about it yet because that's all but, an adaptation shit. But here's the, here's the thing. This movie is so bad oh. that bad ideas seem better than it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like we came up with this shitty scene that's, like, still more useful and efficient than the actual scenes in the movie. All right. So, Sean... Let's get into the cream of the shit crop. Right. Which is Harry... Or, fucking God. I see all the characters are so bland, I'm just mixing them up. Yeah, who gives they're a so non-representative of their characters from the comics. Or like if, like any version of Spider-Man. Yeah. Of the characters from, you know, the PlayStation game from 20 years ago. That was a pretty good game. That was I was really about that game. I still have that game. It's yeah, good. It's if you want to borrow it. Uh, anyway, yes. So, Peter and Gwen, it's... It's so weird how they pitch it in this movie. So it's, because it's kind of tragic because that was one of the best parts about Amazing Spider-Man One. It's was, the best was, part. Yeah, probably you're probably right. Yeah, it was Peter and Gwen's relationship. Even though, like, I had qualms with the fact that Gwen finds out that Peter is Spider-Man in that movie. Within that one movie, that worked. I think. I mean, there's so much wrong with Amazing Spider-Man Two, but I think that was a one of many mistakes they made for setting up a sequel that, like. They couldn't fix. Yeah, that they couldn't fix. That it's like you that that would have provided a much better like storytelling opportunity than what anything they could figure out what to do with Gwen in this movie. Because like at least if they had that, there would have been some conflict, some tension in this whole plot that just does not exist. So, no. And so here's yeah, let's do the scene <sighs> because here's here's yeah. how their their story starts is. Gwen is at graduation, and this is one of those things where when I talk about the terrible dialogue in this movie, it, the, the epicenter of terrible dialogue is her speech. The speech! It's like, life is short! Yeah, it's like, I know from the comics that Gwen Stacy is going to die. I didn't know, I, like, I was not spoiled on this movie, so I didn't know that she was going to die in this movie. Like, I suspected it, but it was like, I didn't know for sure. But as soon as her speech is entirely about death and moving on from death and all this shit, it's like... You like you might as well just have her say, "I'm going to retire in three days." You know, like it's just that. Like it's it's the, way more overt than that, though. Yeah, it's, it's like you just put like the biggest fucking crosshairs on that character. It's unbelievable. It's just like, well, fuck, she's dead, and so that like already ruined. Because now you're just waiting for that character to die for the whole movie, and that's her. That's her first scene. Yeah, that's, that's her first scene. And then this is where it gets weird. So Peter comes in and they've been calling and stuff and texting and clearly they're in love and he comes in and swoops in and just kisses her on stage because that's what Peter Parker yeah, does. We'll talk about that later. We'll talk about that. Okay. Oh. 
But yeah, so they, they're they really clearly in love. They're having a good time. And then he sees the ghost of Dennis Leary and it guilts him into breaking up with her. Apparently for like the fifth or sixth time. Oh. So that just doesn't make any sense. That yeah, because again, like for, like let's reiterate that like the status of their relationship from the last movie was they, they got together like halfway through the movie. They're like, you know, teenage love, whatever. But then Dennis Leary, who's Captain Stacy Gwynn's dad, who's the police captain... Dies at the end of Amazing Spider-Man One because he's killed by Lizard, and his the, his dying words to Peter. And this is one of my biggest problems with the first movie. His dying words to Peter are, "Stay away from Gwen. You are too dangerous for her. Promise me." And then he he dies, and he promised. Peter yeah. promises. Yeah, and then 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 Captain Stacy dies, and then so that's like the the climactic scene of the movie. And like five minutes later, the last the actual last scene of the movie because Peter they do the thing too where like he he doesn't go to the funeral or whatever, and Gwen comes to his house, and Peter's like, I can't do this, I can't do this. It's like, are you breaking up with me? It's like I can't do this, and then they leave. And then the very end of the movie is they're in class together, and then some teacher says something stupid about like don't make promises if you know you can't keep them. That's the Halo line, but whatever. It's basically what she says, and then. Peter whispers in Gwen's ear, Gwen's ear but sometimes those are the best kind of promises and then it shows him swinging at Spider-Man that's the end of the movie so the end of Amazing Spider-Man 1 it tells you that Peter instead of actually properly breaking up with Gwen he, he rejects the dying words of her father words that wise words because Gwen Stacy dies and Peter's life is extremely dangerous he rejects those words and said to have this relationship with her so at the beginning of Amazing Spider-Man 2 they're in a relationship and then he does the exact same thing when he does, like, before they get back together in Major Spider-Man 1, where he's like, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this. It's like, what did you just, why did you just, like, repeated this, like, what are you doing? How did you... Like, why did you have them get back together at the end of Amazing Spider-Man 1 if you're just going to open with them with the exact fucking scene where they break up at the end of Amazing Spider-Man 1 before they get back together? It makes no sense. It makes no sense, and really there's so little to talk about with this subplot, because... Because it doesn't do anything for the whole movie. They yeah. are literally just... Every conversation they have is can be basically summed up in, Oh, I love you, I love you, but we can't be together, but we should be together, but I can't be together, blah, 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 blah. And then they leave. And they, they go to another plot. Yeah. And that's it. And it, it, it goes doesn't develop. And... Their characters don't develop. It doesn't do anything. It makes no fucking sense. It's just... And this is why I say the chemistry is just driven out of it. Sure. Because you just look at them. Like, I think the perfect example is that first breakup scene in this movie. First of many. Where they're outside the Chinese restaurant. I break up with you. It's... And I break up with you. How can you have chemistry <laughs> while saying those words? You can't. And so, like, and it also reduces these really, really talented young actors to this really small bag of ticks. So, basically, all Emma Stone is allowed to do is make her eyes really big and buggy. Yeah. Or, like, pout a little bit. Yeah. That's all she's allowed to do, even though she's a really talented actress. That's yeah. all they have her do. And Andrew Garfield just kind of squirms and sh- shoots like, outwards. Oh, yeah. I want to be with you, but I can't... Uh... Yeah. That's it. I'm and tortured. That's, and that's every scene. And so whatever natural chemistry they have, to me, is so suppressed sure. by everything around it, where I actively despise the characters because they're such assholes. Yeah. They just don't, like... Like, Peter, if you were really Spider-Man, if you were a good Spider-Man, you would just leave her alone and go away. You would never have gotten back together with her in the first place. Like, again, it's something where it's like, you know, the end of Amazing Spider-Man 1. If, like, you can't end that movie that way if this is what you're going to do in the sequel. Because it doesn't... It doesn't gel with the way you ended the last movie. Like, it needs to flow. It's just nonsense. It's, It's nonsense. It's just terrible. It's just... Everything about all of these scenes they have, you know, they have that scene in Times Square that's awful. Then they have the scene where, oh, this was the worst scene in the whole movie to me between those two. Sure. Was um, where she's at her job audition for Oxford 
Or oh, not yeah. job. She's at her interview yeah, for yeah, Oxford. And, he, and Peter comes in, and because in this scene they've decided Peter is an idiot. Yeah. And every scene Peter is something different. And so in this scene, Peter's an idiot. And he comes in and he's just like going on and on and on about something. Like, this is all the stuff that's happening in my life. Uh, yeah. Like, I know you haven't been a part of the rest of this movie, so I need to inform you of everything else that has happened in this movie. Because our thing... Had nothing to do with Electro or Harry and all this nonsense. And this is where the relationship really... And it's in all of these scenes, but this is like the epicenter of how toxic it is. Is that he doesn't care about Gwen. He just keeps talking about his own issues and why he wants to be with her and why she should give up everything in her life and everything she likes and her safety and everything to be with him. Peter is a fucking misogynist pig. Sure. That's all he is. And Gwen is just this weak little girl who, you know, starts to try to be independent and then it's like, oh, fuck it, I'll just be with Peter. Yeah, but it's her choice. It's her choice, Jonathan. It's her choice. I hate that. I hate that so much. It's I hate everything choice. they do with all that. All that. That's like that's like saying that's like the battered wife argument. Like you keep going <laughs> back for it. So it's yeah. your choice. It's like no, it's not. She's in an abusive. Rela- Gwen is in a legitimately kind of emotionally abusive relationship. Yeah, because in this film. I mean, it exactly is because because yeah. Peter, the way Peter like knows he shouldn't be with her, but then keeps on kind of like. He's he like Peter so odd. Like, he's fucking stalking her. And oh, all yeah, that the shit. stalking. I forgot about that. And she thinks it's cute. What yeah. the fuck? It's, he's using his spider powers not to stop crime, not to fight people, not to save people, but to stop Gwen yeah. Stacy? Yeah, but she yeah, makes that's, his. Jonathan, he, she makes his spider sense really tingle, if you know what I'm saying. Well, sure. Then make up your mind. Like, you know what Tobey Maguire's Spider Man did in Spider Man 2 when he realized he couldn't take it anymore? He stopped being Spider Man. Yeah. It was the. He had, you know, he had that, like, I've been thinking about Spider Man 2 a whole lot recently, too, where he has that great scene where he, he runs up to her and is like, There's something I thought I had to do, and I don't have to do it anymore. Like, he, like, that Peter Parker goes in all the way, one way or another, you know? That's right. kind of his problem in that movie, is he needs to find a balance. This. Peter Parker is just like I want to have everything so I'm just going to ruin everything. everything yeah but I'm not going to have like there's not going to be anything that's going to force me to learn from this experience actual Spider-Man would never do anything to put his loved ones in danger directly yeah. this Spider-Man everything he does puts everyone in danger all the time <laughs> exactly I'm surprised Aunt May didn't you know get beaten to death somewhere <laughs> along the line I just it's so fucking weird it's yeah oh by the way yeah why does Peter not know how batteries work Oh God! Right, and you know what? Those that whole because yeah, there's that whole scene where he's trying to figure out how to make his web shooters not blow up when even though Electro is in jail now, so who cares? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, there's no re like he should just assume that Electro has been defeated. But so they have and they have that whole like montage where he's trying to figure out how to make them like not like insulate or something, whatever he's trying to do, and he's playing a YouTube video. Some dude is like. When batteries have too much voltage, they explode! It's like, well, you know, Peter's a fucking... That's actually one of the things I liked about the first movie, is that they were actually really... They were largely consistent about a lot of the stuff that Peter knew as a scientist. Is He seemed very, like, physics and mechanical engineer focused in a lot of his studies. Yeah. You know? Like, he... Because Peter's not the one who solves all the bullshit about the cross-genetics... He's like he his father did, and he finds his father's equation. So Peter is very clearly established as more of like a mechanics guy, which means he would be the one that knows about the electricity bullshit. Gwen Stacy is like the biologist, cross geneticist person. She should have. She should not be the one who solves that problem at the end of the day. You know, yeah. she's like, oh, magnetize your what a bullshit nonsense. Whatever. Okay, let's do that. This is science. So stupid. And then. Okay, so then I love at the end, you know, where... Also, here, the the one thing I was thinking about in that entire scene where he's watching the YouTube video and that montage 
is how great would it have been if he was watching the Bill Nye episode where Bill Nye talks about batteries. It's a good episode. Yeah. I had that on VHS tape and it had some of those like play battery stuff. Yeah. Did you have that? Yeah. That was a cool kit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So missed opportunity that would have made this movie so much better if just like a little shining spot of Bill Nye the science guy like right in the smack that middle. Bill Nye that would have been great because like because I was literally this is how bored I was because I should say this was my reaction to this movie I was not angry at this movie until probably like three hours after I watched it and I was really started thinking about it. I was just numb because I was so bored because this movie, that's how much of a failure it is in its narrative structure that nothing follows from anything else that it feels like you're sitting there for like five hours yeah. because nothing builds up. It's such an incoherent story that I'm just sitting there and I was so bored that what I was thinking about for that entire sequence was just... That would, if they had Bill Nye here, that would be so cool because Peter Parker is of the right age... He, he would have been so into Bill Nye. Like, that would have been a great little character trait. But no, they wasted, missed opportunity. <laughs> yep, that was too bad. Like, I could forgive the battery stuff, because if you're turning to Bill Nye, that shows you are humble in yeah, the face it, of science. And it's more <laughs> like he's doing it, he's watching Bill Nye for, for fun, yeah. for the memories, while he's actually doing this actual science. Just that he really knows. Now he's, and the thing I love about this whole battery thing is that he doesn't figure it out, so he just gives up. Yeah, exactly. And then Gwen just has to... It's like the movie forgets that he didn't figure it out until the end, so Gwen's just like, we need to magnetize him with a car battery. It's like, whoa, uh, okay, Gwen, electrical engineer lady, that's not, that's, no, that's not how that works, but okay. And then it's like, now I can fight Electra with my, my magnet web. So stupid. But then I want to talk also about that scene where Gwen, they have the car battery and stuff, yeah. and then Peter, to keep her safe, webs her to the car... That's not keeping her safe. Yeah. That's ensuring that if anyone like runs down the street with a gun or something, she will be the first yeah. in line to die. Also, if that hood closes, it's going to break her fucking wrist. Yeah. <laughs> it's so stupid. Yeah. So there's a lesson. But it, anyway, before that, we have that thing where she's leaving and so he webs I love you all over the <sighs> thing. And then, the like, what a great way to keep your secret identity is to web in front of the entire world. I love you, and then in plain daylight, swooping out and picking up Gwen and swinging her up to that bridge. If anybody who knew Gwen at all saw that happen, they would either assume that Gwen Stacy is cheating on Peter Parker with Spider-Man, or more logically deduce, Peter Parker's probably fucking Spider-Man. Like, how bad are you at keeping your secret identity, dude? I mean, how many cameras... Holy shit! How many news cameras must be on that tower they're on? Exactly! Like, if any... Like, all that that needed to happen for Peter Parker's identity to be shown to the entire world is for one news chopper that sees that happen, decides to, you know, great idea, let's just go in for a closer fucking look, and he sees them on top of the bridge, like, kissing. Because he takes his mask off, Yeah, he Yeah, he does. So, uh, anyway, and then the funniest scene about this thing is, so he says, I'm going to come to London with you, so Spider-Man's just going to abandon the city of New York. Yeah, we're not, we'll talk about, that's another one of okay, those, look at that. fucking Spider-Man scene. That's stupid. It's a very stupid scene, it's but for stupid. reasons that have to do with their shitty version of Peter Parker. Yes, but it's a, it's a dumb scene all around, and you know, it's just, and then of course, that's the moment where they decide, alright, now we're going to try to force a climax. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, now everything needs to come to a head. We have to have a really disappointing, just kind of confusing and not interesting fight scene with Electro that's just like, well, fucking great. Like, there goes the only good thing I could have got out of this movie at this point is, like, one good fucking fight scene, you know? And you fuck that up. Like, it's it's such a lame, uninteresting fight scene. It's like, uh... Yep. And it's like a half a minute long. Yeah, it's just... Yeah, and it's all... It is, like, basically, the entire fight scene is, I'm Spider-Man... And I'm in this power generation facility, and I'm going to swing around while Electro shoots these pylons and blows them up. 
and they then, make they make dubstep noises when they do. And then Gwen is going to hit a big red button. Yeah, and that's like it. that's the entire action scene. It's like, well, fuck, that's yeah, great, not very interesting. And then <laughs> because like you know the action in the first Amazing Spider-Man wasn't incredible, but like that scene where he fights Lizard in Midtown High, that was a pretty cool fight scene. I really enjoyed that. When I watched it the second time, I was like, yeah, this is a pretty good Spider-Man fight scene. And I think nope, the, not in this movie. You well, don't even get that much. Well, even the uh, the climax of Amazing Spider-Man, I think, is really good on Oscorp Tower. Sure, and yeah, it's that, a fun scene. Yeah. There, and also, it feels like there's accumulation. Yeah, there's movies. there's stakes because it's like I had them. That movie had a fucking plot, you know. Right. So you have Captain Stacy. That character arc leads him there. You have, like, Lizard, like, who has been, like, you know, Kirk Connors and Peter Parker have are the two main characters in the movie, and they have, like, you know, been going at it for a while now, and, like, all that character development builds up to the end. Captain Stacy gets killed. Like, they, they, like, they had all the tension with, like, let's, do we need to put the serum in the thingy? Like, they, that was a well-structured last act that was built up to that everything was set up. That was a well, like, perfectly fine executed. Here it's just, we get to the end of the movie, we hit the two hour mark, so we have to have a climax, so this is the point where Electro's gonna come out. It's not very hard, Peter beats him without lifting a fucking finger. Yeah, Gwen just has to hit a button. Yeah, Gwen has to lift exactly one finger. Yes, Um, (laughs) exactly. And then the Green Goblin. But it was her choice. And remember whenever I say Green Goblin, it's air quotes. This is so, this is like one of the worst adaptations of a character I've ever seen. This is such a waste. So every time I say Green Goblin, imagine uh, quotation yeah. marks. So the Green Goblin... He's more kind of like pale yellow than green when True. you come down to it. He's just, it's all stupid. Yeah. So anyway, he comes in and he's mad. He wants Spider-Man's blood. He's like, rah, 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 I want your blood. Oh, you're Peter Parker. Yeah, here. yeah, Gwen Stacy's there. I love how he, he does it like five times. He's like, he looks at Peter. He looks at Gwen. He looks at Peter. He looks at Gwen. He looks at Peter. Then he looks at Gwen. He's like, huh. <laughs> Now, does Harry Osborn know Gwen Stacy? Yeah, there was one scene okay. because Peter tells Harry that he has a girlfriend and then oh, he yeah. runs into her on that okay. elevator. You've seen it more recently than me. Yeah, so. yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I, I can forgive you for forgetting that that happened because yeah. it's a very quick... Oh yeah, there's that whole horrible scene where he's trying to let Gwen get out, and so he just—it's a really creepy, like him him on the elevator with Gwen is this really uncomfortable scene where it's no, I mean the scene where Peter is trying to let Gwen on the elevator, so he has the coffee and he's pouring it on people, and there's like this whole like bad Buster Keaton slapstick, yeah, really bad imitation. Like Buster Keaton is awesome, this is not. That's the difference. Um, Anyway, so the Goblin comes in, he picks up Gwen. And this is where... Okay, I'm going to describe my reaction to this first. Sure. Because I have more of a just the movie reaction. Maybe you can explain it from the comic side right, okay. a little bit. So anyway, yeah. the goblin picks up Gwen. He takes her to this clock tower. Drops her. Peter has her for a while. Misses. Saves her. And then in a surprisingly graphic shot, he catches sure. her. She breaks. And then she hits the ground and bounces up. And it's more graphic than I think they should have done for the context of this scene. But anyway, we'll get sure. into that. So... Basically what this is, is this scene exists. Gwen's death exists, and this whole scene is there, not to pay off on Green Goblin, yeah. not to pay off on anything Peter's been going through, not to pay off on anything Gwen's been going yeah, through. Because again, because none, of, none of it is set up, nothing is built up for no. the rest of the movie to make this, this scene poignant or affecting in any way. No. So what we have is we have all of this, we have Gwen die in this moment because I think they looked at their movie and they said, oh God... Literally nothing has happened. Yeah. No character development. No emotions have come out. The characters haven't changed. They haven't learned anything about themselves. So how can we make people leave this movie and think, have the illusion that there was meaning to yeah, it? Yeah, that's the illusion that there was a plot and that 
something ha- like something happened in this movie. So like what something must have. So what's the best way to to make this illusion of meaning? Let's brutally murder a young woman. Yeah. Fuck you people. Fuck you people so fucking hard. Let's just brutally murder this young girl. She's 18, let's just kill her in her prime because we haven't had meaning yet and we need to create meaning and ring it out. So we're going to kill this young woman. And that's offensive enough. I find that legitimately sure. offensive yeah. because... It's exploitative. Yes, it's exploitative because death, this is what I wrote in my review, death in summer blockbusters doesn't always have to mean something. It's okay if once in a while, yeah. you know, if, if in the Transformers movie Optimus Prime steps on someone, whatever. That's fine. Yeah, yeah, when there's like but, little collateral damage yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, like you can shoot in such a way that it's like you can accept this as a movie, whatever. This yeah. character needs to die. It's not like but, a big deal. But when you have a prime character in your films... And it's a young person. Yeah, like the main character's love interest, for God's yes. sake. It's a main character in the series. It's a young person. All of this. And you just kill her just to create the illusion of meaning. That is textbook, page one, exploitation. Yeah. That's what exploitation is. It has no meaning anywhere else in the movie. And what it's and they don't follow up on it well whatsoever. Oh God, because no, they don't. What they do afterwards, and a lot of people have been saying, oh, this is the best part of the movie. Fuck you guys, this is the worst part of the movie because what it, it exposes how bad the rest of the movie is. Yeah. Because here's where it really gets to me, is you get through, so Gwen dies, I think it's, again, for how nothing a moment it is, I think it's too graphic on that level. Sure. Even though, There's no blood, but it's still it's just the image is just like, it's, it's there to hurt you like kicking a puppy. That's all it sure. is, is we're yeah. kicking a puppy. So they kick the puppy, they kill Gwen, and then how do... Okay, we've got five minutes left in the movie. Peter it's also has, really important to note that Spider-Man defeats Gwen, Green Goblin before Gwen dies. Yes. So, it's, so he doesn't even get to have, like... You don't even get, like, a revenge motivation out of it. Like, you just get no. nothing. Like, nothing comes from that death. Yes. Let's go on. Nothing comes from it. And so then they're like, okay, we've got five minutes, but we can't let the audience leave sad, so we have to make Peter happy again. How do we make Peter happy again? We're going to give you the most bullshit fortune cookie version of grief we can yeah. possibly imagine. And there's two layers to it. First layer is we have Aunt May basically telling Peter, here's how you deal with grief, Peter. You box it up, compartmentalize it, and forget about it. Yeah. That's grief. You put it in a box, you throw the box away, and then you're okay. And I know what they're trying to go for here, which is the thing about you know moving on and you can't just be consumed by that person. Yeah. But that's not how grief works. You don't just say... You know what? My significant other yeah. died. So if I put her picture in a box and get rid of the box, I'm okay now. Yeah, and you know, in like that issue of like if you're trying to like you're doing because they are doing the thing where he's consumed by grief because he's abandoned his mantle as Spider-Man. This all happens like the last five minutes. He's yes. so crammed into the end. He's abandoned his role as Spider-Man, and so in the last five minutes, they just try to tell him like give the whole thing about how you overcome grief as if the rest of the movie was building up to that point right. when it isn't because he's not grieving over it. like if maybe he like he was still give like grieving over Uncle Ben I'm just really so many ideas about how you could make this movie work. If he was still grieving over Uncle Ben, then you could have that happen where it's like then this is like the straw that breaks the camel's back and he needs to figure out a way to get over this grief that's been consuming him. Then you could get to work if the rest of the movie's dealing with it. Like any way you try to ex- like explain how to overcome grief in five minutes, it's always going to come across as cheap. You can't do it. But I even you think can't. The, you can't just give this one speech that just like this is how you deal with it. Like you have to have here, the story sum up it, sum it up for you. But here's the thing: they give you two speeches, and they're both really sure. stupid, kind of offensive ways of talking about grief. So you have Aunt May's stupid thing, which makes no goddamn sense, and it's just 
Again, I, I'm using the word offensive because I honestly feel it with this movie. Sure. And then you get into we play Gwen's speech again from graduation, which is also weird because that's like the exact same story mechanically used for Uncle Ben in the yes. first movie, where he has this like you know, this, you know, fateful voicemail. Right. But left. it's even dumber here because what Gwen starts talking about is you have to feel hope, and if you feel hope, everything's okay. Yeah. It's like magic dust. And so Peter just hears that and it's like, you know what? If I have hope, I'll be okay. What the fuck is hope? What are you using that word for? Yeah. It's just... Because nothing else in the movie has been, like, defining hope or anything. And hope is just... It's a word. It's nothing. It means nothing. And to just bring it in here, it's like, if you can just summon hope again, then you'll be okay. That's like saying, you know what the best way to get out of grief is? Just feel happy. Just forget about it and feel happy. That's all you need to do. And again... Just do some heroin, motherfucker. Just do some heroin. And here's what it comes down to, and I I don't want to encroach too far on your discussion of how this is not a Spider-Man movie. Sure. But it's, it's relevant to this, which is that they say it's, it's a way to make Peter look like a good person, even though he's an awful person in this yeah, movie. Yeah, exactly. It's one of the many ways the movie, like, bends, its, bends backwards to try to, like, make it so Peter is a hero. So here's, yes, and so here's the message at the end. It's that Peter did nothing but awful stuff in this movie. Yeah. But if he compartmentalizes his grief by putting it in boxes and throwing it away and then just feels happy about things that he should feel sad about, then he can feel like a good hero. And you know what that is? That's sociopathy. That's yeah. psychopathy. That's Which is kind of what he's rotten. felt like in weird instances in this movie, especially with like the quippier stuff. In live action, just like, he kind of feels like a sociopath. Maybe yeah. that's the whole point. Maybe this, maybe this is some weird postmodern commentary on Spider-Man. It's not, but maybe it is. So that's my reaction to Gwen's death. Sure. And as someone who's, you know been through losing people yeah. and, and it's like a part of my life mm. uh, fuck this movie and yeah. just, just fuck that ending and also you know I've it's just is on my mind because I've just known some people recently and some things in college and, and, and stuff of, of people Gwen's age uh, young women who have died tragically and, and what a big impact that has on communities and families and stuff and here yeah. it's just a plot point <sighs> used to try to make the movie have yeah. weight that is so sickening and gross to me it's just gross it's like rape scenes in movies where they sure. just put rape in to kind of make the movie look edgy it's like god you are you are taking and and you know um exploiting real world trauma just for just garbage and yeah, it's just, just for awful. like no value whatsoever yeah. in the narrative other than to try to make some sense of stake or emotional payout without having any understanding of actually doing that naturally. Yeah. So there are my two cents. Sure. Sean, your take on Gwen's death. Okay, so first I'm going to just like... I don't want to talk about the Spider-Man stuff right away because like I basically agree with everything you said that I it is like... It's just so poorly handled that it does feel exploitative and just fuck them for doing it. But it is like just as a narrative structure, which again... You know, if you're trying to teach a class or you're just curious on your own about, like, how to create a story, how to structure a narrative in film or any other medium, this is, like, one of the great examples of how not to do it. And this is one of, like, if you're going to kill off a major character, this is exactly the wrong way to do it because this movie, it shoves... So... It shoves, like, an entire movie's worth of character development. It shoves all the character development... Into the last five minutes, into his denouement, into like that falling action section of the plot, where it's like Peter Gwyn dies. Peter is stricken with grief. He abandons his role as Spider-Man, and then he takes it back up again. That happens in the last five minutes, and I ignore it like the, all the Spider-Man shit anywhere. That's ridiculous. That's you just shoved the two most like two of the three most significant plot points, the only plot points into your whole movie into the denouement. 
That is not how you write a plot. You can't do that. You just can't do that. It doesn't work on any level. So again, just on a purely narrative level, the movie fails. It fails completely, and it's that's especially evident in its ending. Let's talk about the death of Gwen Stacy. So last podcast, I, I went into some detail into how that was when I was a kid and first read it. That was this, it's one of the most affecting storylines I've ever read. And then since since I watched this movie, I reread those issues, like the ones like directly leading up to it, and then Amazing Spider-Man 120 and 121 where it happens. And and it was like, you know, it's still a really, really well-done storyline. Like, it's really well-executed, and it's well-executed for a number of different reasons, and it's so... It's tragic to me. It's so unfortunate that... We had this opportunity with the first movie that you have set up Spider-Man, you set up Gwen Stacy, and you set up... I mean, you didn't set up Green Goblin, which was a huge mistake, but you set up enough that you could feasibly, in this movie series, do the death of Gwen Stacy story arc in a way that, like, the Sam Raimi movies never had the opportunity to do, and you just completely fucking wasted it. And one of the biggest ways they did it is that the Green Goblin is just a plot point in this whole movie instead of being an actual character because one of the things that makes the death of Gwen Stacy work and be really fucking effective is that Green Goblin was a villain in Spider-Man comics since like the issues in the 20s I think is when he was introduced you know he was introduced in Steve Ditko's run and so he was a villain that like he was basically Spider-Man's arch nemesis and so there was all this tension building up throughout the whole series and you know, so and Harry Osborne and Peter's like relationship with well was well established. Norman Osborne and Peter's relationship was well established. Spider-Man and Green Goblin's relationships were well established. And then Peter Parker and Gwen Stacy had had a long relationship in the comics. They had been together for a very long time. And so when Green Goblin kills her, it is a huge moment because so all of those characters have been building up to that, and it's like. You know, Green Goblin stepped over this line and he went too far. And it's a really brutally impactful moment for all those reasons. Because it's so properly built up to. It built up to over, you know, basically a decade, you know. And so to try to do that in one movie where none of it has been built up. Like, like all you've done is establish Peter and Gwen's relationship in the first movie. And that's it. And then you waste. You spend your entire second movie spinning your wheels developing nothing to then just have Harry Osborn become the Green Goblin in the last 15 minutes and then kill Gwen it's like you've just you've you've all you did was know that Gwen Stacy died and then killed her and had you like I'm convinced that nobody fucking like maybe Andrew Garfield is the only person who read the death of Gwen Stacy's story arc because if if these people knew how that was handled in the comics and then they decided to do it like this, I'm like, I'm offended. Like, that's... Any people who call themselves Spider-Man fans in RK that this is the way you do that storyline, it's like, just go fuck yourself because this is so wrong. And then also, like I said, how, like, why would you have Spider-Man defeat Green Goblin before Gwen dies? Because, like, that's the whole thing is that after that happens, Peter goes fucking mental. Because Green Goblin drops her off the bridge, Spidey goes down, webs her foot, and then again, one of the most tragic things is that him webbing her foot causes the whiplash effect that snaps her neck. And Spider-Man doesn't realize that that's what happened. Because Green Goblin says this line that it's like, anyone who fell from that height would die. Like, she died before she hit the ground. But he doesn't, like, 
Peter's obviously not aware that his action is what directly caused her death. So there's that really tragic aspect to it. But then he just goes fucking insane. And he storms in. He goes running over to Harry, who is who has recently OD'd on cocaine, because that was like a Harry Osborne story arc at the time, and goes in and basically like grabs Harry and is like, where's Norman? And Harry's like, I don't know, Peter, don't leave me, don't leave me, I need you. Like, I'm freaking the fuck out here, man. I need you, I need you. And then Harry, and Peter just abandons him. He goes running after Green Goblin. They get in a brutal fucking fight. And then the basically the end of the Sam Raimi movie happens where Green Goblin impales himself on his own glider and Green Goblin dies. And it's like this whirlwind of emotion that could only happen if Gwen Stacy dies. Like, you need that as this critical mass to just have everything go fucking crazy. And it's a really emotional, powerful storyline because of it. And this, it's just like nothing. Like, all they gain out of it, all they gain out of Gwen Stacy dying is to give Peter a reason to stop being Spider-Man, and then they have him be Spider-Man again in the same movie. So it's like, what the fuck is Amazing Spider-Man 3 going to be? It's probably going to be he's going to start out as Spider-Man, and then he's going to be like, oh, Gwen Stacy died because of me, I'm going to stop being Spider-Man now. And just, like, retcon this ending the same way they did with the ending to Amazing Spider-Man 1. They're just going to be like, we're going to have this happy ending after all this sad shit happened, and then the next movie... We're going to go back to the sad shit because we need to actually deal with it to have a plot because we didn't set up anything to deal with in a sequel. It's just, it's crazy. It's so ruined. They just ruined everything about it. So, you know, you were talking about how the creators of this movie obviously just don't get that story, the Gwen Stacy story, yeah. if they read it at all. And what's so funny and ironic to me is that, you know, the first Sam Raimi movie doesn't have Gwen Stacy in it. It doesn't have the love interest die, but it clearly understands the impact of that story more yeah. just by because it understands, well, we can use the frame of this because it's a really good frame, but we know we can't kill Mary Jane slash Gwen here because we haven't built it up enough. Yeah. But we can have the threat and we can still get Peter to that point. Yeah, and you can still have the fight scene yeah. with going Green Goblin and have it be really impactful. Exactly. It's a better adaptation of that story and it's not even that story. Exactly, yeah. It, it definitely is. God, I you know it's it's funny. I was just looking through my review because what you said it's is exactly what I wrote in my review. When Marvel Comics killed Gwen back in the seventies, it meant something because the Goblin was an established foe, and Peter and Gwen had been thoroughly explored as a romantic unit. And the fallout lasted longer than ten oppressively pandering minutes at the end of an yeah. awful movie. Here, it means nothing except that the Amazing Spider-Man Two has the utmost contempt for its viewers, and that angers me indeed. Yeah. So yes. Sorry, Gwen. You got fucked in this movie. Yeah. Sorry, every other Seriously. character. You got fucked too. But dude, thank God, thank God that they did not do the Mary Jane thing because, you know, like it basically was more or less revealed that was Mary, were Mary Jane to be in this movie, she would have been the ending scene where it's really? like, yeah, like that's basically what it seemed like to me. It's like yeah. that, that would have been, like, can you imagine how awful that would have been if like the end of this movie was Mary Jane opening the door and saying, face it, tiger, you hit the jackpot. Oh God! Oh, <laughs> I actually kind of. I actually wish that was in here because the movie really. The movie's already bad enough. Just throw it in there. Make it more offensive. Whatever. <laughs> that would have been fucking incredible. Like I don't know if that's what they were going to do. In my mind, that's what they're going to do. And if that's what they were going to do, this was better than that. I. Guess. Andrew Garfield has said basically what it was is Mary Jane lived next door. And they only had a couple of scenes. They talked over the fence, and then they had one oh. scene where they went and and took a ride around New York together, and that was it. So, oh, so it would have been. She was only on set for a week, yeah. um, so it yeah. would have been amounted to nothing. It would have amounted to nothing, like everything. Else. Yeah, it's just like you know, 
While they should, while they were cutting her character out of the movie, they probably should just cut everything out of outside of the movie. This has been a black screen for two I hours. Would, I would have rather seen that. Yes, I would have. Me too. All right. Um, I want to talk. Let's. We're going to get to the Spider-Man of it at the end. Sure, I think that's okay. what we need to end on. All right. I want to talk a little about the other things I hate about this movie. Okay. Because we talked about the story and stuff. Yes. And it's an utter failure as a narrative, yeah. and that's you know this is a narrative medium. And this is a narrative use of the medium. If it fails that way, it fails completely. Yeah, but my biggest issue with here's it. a baffling thing to me that a lot of people have been saying is that right. it's it's bad, but you know it's got such nice cinematography and the action is so good and that everything is you know it's so well made and well acted. I, fuck all that. I think the acting's terrible. I think Hans Zimmer was the wrong composer for this, and then he yeah. he like he worked with Farrell Williams and a lot of other people who it, are. It was like. Hans Zimmer in the Magnificent Six, I think yeah. we said in the credits, like that. And really he worked with a lot of talented musicians, but they amount to nothing here. They have all these like their theme. Amount, they amount to dubstep in the electro scenes. That's yes. what they amount to. Well, and, and the really elect- weird like yeah. in the Times Square scene. Yeah, they have this weird whispering voice chorus, <laughs> and then the worst part of the music is they have this. They like we're going to write a new theme for Spider Man. It's just Spider-Man- like such a like it's like. Because that's what it does when it like opens up with like he's falling from the sky, yeah. and it starts playing that theme. And it's like, are they playing like the soundtrack to a Superman movie? Like, what is going? This is it's not blaring like Spider-Man at all. It's just ripping off John Williams. Yeah. It's just a bunch of horns, and it's terrible. And you know, and it's so not appropriate for Spider-Man as a character. It's like no. a super generic superhero theme. James Horner wrote a really good score for Amazing Spider-Man One, and they kicked him off for this. And I don't get it, but whatever. Um, so the you music is that bad. dubstep. The kids are really into it. I hear like four years ago. That's stupid. But then I think you know I've even been seeing people say it's you know it's a beautifully made movie. I disagree with that. I think this is a really lazily shot movie. I thought like take any and I I watched this on the biggest theater screen in Colorado. I went out to my favorite theater, the Cine Capri. It's it's a seventy by thirty foot screen. It's huge. And well, it's good you saw it like that because this is this is a great movie. I just I go there for big movies. Yeah. That's my thing. I, li- I like that theater a lot. Um, but anyway, uh, so at that size, on that kind of screen, if a movie is well shot, it will hold up, and you will see all of that, and you will it'll look better than ever. If a movie has any flaws, they're there too, and they're blown up. And to me, it's this movie has so much wasted space in every frame. It's this. It's the classic example to me of one of these movies where they shoot it in anamorphic widescreen because movies are shot that way when they're blockbusters, but. We none of us here know have any idea how to shoot a movie like that. So it's just Peter will be you know off the frame, and the rest of the frame will be just black or brown or something. A lot of movies are shot like this, but it, it's always aggravates me because it's a lazy, boring use of that frame. I think it's like that a lot. And then I think also in the way they shoot a lot of the Spider-Man action and swinging and stuff, it feels really constrained by the aspect ratio they've chosen, where everything is just kind of claustrophobic and it's hard to tell for me what's going on. I don't. I just think like it's really kind of like a lot of people were saying like, oh, that first scene in the movie where he's you know going through the streets and he's stopping Paul Giamatti. That's a, that's the best Spider-Man action scene ever. Stopping ridiculous Russian Paul Giamatti. You yes. can't forget that. Russian you Paul can Giamatti. barely hear that he has a ridiculous Russian accent, but I heard it. Barely, I was paying attention. You can barely hear him at all. Yeah, because it feels like he's like 50 yards away in every single shot. Yes. It's really funny. Anyway. Why the fuck is Paul Giamatti in this movie? If this is what they're going to do with him, why the fuck is he in this movie? He needed a paycheck. I don't know. Paul, Paul Giamatti got eat. You know? <laughs> it's just... No, there's nothing wrong with him. I just don't understand why they went to go get him. <laughs> I know. It's stupid. But You could have gotten anyone to fucking play him. So anyway, I think the action was really like choppy too. I think it's there's too many fast cuts. I think it's all kind of claustrophobic in the frame. I think there's a couple of interesting shots of, of 
how they show Peter Webbing, but even then, I think Sam Raimi did it infinitely better in his sure. movies, yeah. in part because Spider-Man 2 and 3 are shot anamorphically, but they adapt to that more. They use horizontality more, where this is more like behind Spider-Man as he webs through. Yeah. Well, that inevitably and they have that really weird shot in the beginning where it looks like he stuck a GoPro to his dick, and yes. it's just like looking up at his eyes, and it's like... What is it? What did you? Why did you? What are you trying to get out of this shot? It was like when they did the first person shit in the first movie. It was yeah. like, why? Like, and you this, don't know how to do this. This is what I was built trying to build to is that exactly what you just said there is that everyone wants to praise, like, oh, Mark Webb knows how to shoot Spider Man. Mark Webb doesn't know how to shoot anything in this movie because every scene is a different style. So, yeah, like, and definitely. within action scenes, every shot is just a different style. Like, here's going to be the GoPro Spider Man shot, and here's going to be the behind POV Spider Man shot, and here's going to be the first person Spider Man shot, and here's going to be the normal conventional shot, and here's going to be the we're going to be really tight framed, Michael Bay style, and cutting really fast. So, every action scene is to me has no identity whatsoever. Like, you know, whatever you think of Sam Raimi. Those are Sam Raimi Spider-Man action scenes, and they are consistent through and through. Yeah, they, they have, have a, a voice. Style. Yeah. yeah, there's no voice to this. I, you know, I, and I don't, I don't know what to make of Mark Webb after this movie because I don't know if I want to blame any single person on this film because it's clearly such a studio mishmash. Yeah, but you know, you don't get to direct a movie like this and walk away from that. I'm sorry, I don't care how much I've liked some of his other. His only two other movies are Amazing Spider-Man One and Five Hundred Days of Summer. I like Five Hundred Days of Summer a lot. I like Amazing Spider-Man 1, okay, this is a piece of shit and one of the worst movies I've ever seen, and a lot of that does go on to the direction, which is just, it's nothing, you know? Yeah. And he can't get anything out of the actors, and he can't get anything out of the you know, music, or, and the effects are just kind of, they're nice, I guess, they're polished, but they don't yeah. do anything. So I just think on a technical side, too, the movie is just, everything about it is a failure to me. I don't like anything about this movie. There's one thing I like about this movie. Okay. It's a better Spider-Man costume than the last one. Okay, sure. I still don't think he just... looks like Spider Man when I see him. Whenever I saw Spider Man in the first movie, I was like, "Yeah, it kind of looks like." Spider-Man. I still think there's slightly too much blue in the suit. His, no, his torso it's... area is bigger than it was in the Raimi movies. I like that suit better, but sure, like the, they don't have the big fat spider logo on the back. We still have yeah. not gotten that represented yet, but yeah, you know, they have a really obs- obsession with making like the legs on the spider logo really fucking long, and I don't understand it. I don't like how it looks, but it's. A thousand times better than the one in the first movie because, like I said, right. like what the f- when I rewatched it, it's like, what the fuck were they thinking? It looks so bad. It doesn't look anything like Spider-Man. His lenses are like yellow. It's what? weird. I just, but yeah, they improved the suit, and I just can't muster any care about it. It's sure. like who gives? Well, a yeah, shit? it's 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 a good like you know, someone should slap that you know costume designer on the back and it's like you did the best thing in this whole movie. You can't usually say that about the person who designed the costume. They legitimately did the best thing in the whole movie. You can say that about every Bos Lerman movie. Sure, yeah. <laughs> Alright, so anyway, yeah. That, so those are, I mean, do you have anything to add to that about the cinematics of it? Not really, yeah. It's just such a... Like, I... Because I wasn't even, like, paying enough attention to it to criticize it because I was so bored yeah. by the lack of story. That was my primary concern. It was like, uh, this is... This is such a failure on every single level. How, like, do these people, like, even know... Like, have these people never seen a movie? Have they never read a story? Like, their parents never read them a fucking picture book when they were a kid? Because they clearly have no idea how you construct a story in any way. And I can't... And I haven't stressed enough on this podcast how awkward and awful all the dialogue is, too. Sure. It sounds like someone who does not natively speak English and is... 
only recently discovered that they are a human being. This is my choice. Trying to, yeah. I break up with you. I break up with you. It doesn't sound like coherent English, <laughs> it does, does it? It, it doesn't sound like stuff that anyone would ever say. Yeah. In any version of reality. Yeah. I, I don't need it to be realistic dialogue. I like Quentin Tarantino. No one talks like that. But I need it to sound like something that could come out of a human being's mouth. Nothing in this movie does. Yeah. Maybe when someone says, hey, somewhere in the movie. I don't know. But even then, it's probably awkwardly done. Yeah. Probably. Fuck it. All right. But as we said before, so this is—it's just a bad movie fundamentally. Yeah, and yeah, I want to. And it's not. No, it's not just a bad movie. It is a failure. Oh of a yeah, movie. like it's, that is the word you have to use for it. It's a failure, not just a movie, but as a story. It is—it fundamentally fails. Because again, we have spent basically this entire podcast or this entire section so far just talking about the different plots. And if you haven't seen the movie, we cannot stress enough that it's like that's the movie. It's like it's those four plots. And they have nothing to do with each other, and it just constantly intercuts between them. So it's like, there's nothing built up, there's nothing sustained, there's no core theme, there's no core message, there's no spine, there's no through line, there's nothing. Like, there could have been different people playing the characters in, every, in, in all those different plots, and it would have made just as much sense, you know? Yes. It would have been, like, just as bad of a movie. Yep. I, I said it in my review as the film uh, displays a startling omnipresent lack of baseline narrative or cinematic competency in nearly every conceivable area. Yeah, exactly. It lacks <laughs> any it. degree of competency. It is incompetent. It is in, completely in every way you could imagine it. And then on top, and I want to stress that because we do not hate this movie because we are Spider-Man fans and feel it betrayed the character. That's part yeah. of it. But moreover, we just like good movies. Yeah, and I despise bad story like yes. bad narrative construction because that's you know what I study so yes. if you fuck it up that much and you get paid for it I kind of resent you naturally that's, because I could have written a better screenplay when I was 12 for this fucking movie we did write something better Sean we yeah. improvised it on the podcast that's true that's right we did an episode about a year ago where we when we was hearing all the stupid stuff they were putting in this movie and Sean and I did kind of a game at the end of one podcast you can find it in the podcast archive on jonathanlack.com where we spend about 30 minutes at the end of an episode just saying let's take every element we know is in Amazing Spider-Man yeah. 2 and try to write a story and we came up with something yeah legit. and that was like based on like we had fucking Venom in there I think we had Black Cat in there because Felicia is in this movie <laughs> but in like a for a scene yeah in like a really perfunctory role that like doesn't feel like it sets up her being Black Cat at all I don't know if they're going to make her Black Cat she doesn't seem like Felicia Hardy from the comics at all I have no idea what that is but yeah so, that, yeah, so we took on even more responsibility and made an even more coherent plot. Yeah. Because so we fucking know how to write a story, even if, like, it's overstuffed. Like, Spider-Man 3, like, you can still have a story. Like, you don't have to abandon the basic narrative construction just because you have a bunch of villains, you know? Yeah. And this isn't even a problem of having a bunch of villains. It's got two, kind of. Yeah, it's, it's more a problem that they both tried to make both of them the main villain at different points in the movie, which just doesn't yeah. work. They, it has no focus on a single antagonist or a single antagonistic force or theme or anything. Captain America 2 had like five antagonists. Yeah, It's exactly. a great movie. They figured it out. Oh, God. But anyway, yes. So on top of all of that and just, just betraying our own narrative and critical sensibilities yeah. here... It's a terrible presentation of Spider-Man, and it is... is it, if you like Spider-Man, it just sets your blood on fire. Yeah. Why don't you take it away here, Sean? Okay, right. So, let's talk about how immediately, immediately you know this movie doesn't get Spider-Man. It makes a huge, critical fucking mistake. It breaks rule number one in Spider-Man's first appearance... 
That is, so he's, you know, he stops Alexi Rhino or whatever with all that shit, and he's calling Gwen, and it seems like he's going to be late for his graduation, and Gwen's like, you need to get here, and she's like the valedictorian. It's like, where are you, Peter? Are those sirens? It's like, no, they're not sirens. I'm not doing dangerous shit. And it's like, okay, I'm not going to be concerned about the fact that you're clearly out being Spider-Man, and I'm your girlfriend, and we're not going to do anything about her being concerned about him constantly putting his life in danger. So Gwen Stacy's character, they've already just like, well, we're not going to put any sort of narrative like conflict or dynamic in their relationship at all. Let's okay, dismiss that. So Peter seems like he's going to be late to his own graduation. His name is about to get called. And what happens? He basically, he doesn't literally swing onto stage because everyone knows he's Spider-Man. But he basically just swings onto the stage right on time. Kisses Gwen, like, like, you know, like, grabs her, this whole, like, kind of, like, bow thing, like, kisses her right in front of everyone, gets his diploma, high-fives the principal, and walks off the stage. That's what, yeah, is that Peter Parker? No! Fuck no! Like, you broke rule number one, rule number one, Peter Parker is never on time for anything. He is always late, I, the dude was late to his fucking wedding, he is always late because he's out being fucking Spider-Man. The dude can never make it to anything. And he always lets people down because he's always taking on too much responsibility. You can't have your first scene with featuring Peter Parker have him be on time. And not just on time, but being like the coolest fucking dude in the whole place. That's like what Tony Stark would do at his grandfather. Exactly. Yeah, it is exactly. That is fucking Tony Stark. That is not... Peter Parker, and it's an issue with, it is part of an issue with Amazing Spider-Man 1 as well, but at least there's some of it there, that he never feels like he's a nerd. It never really feels like this character has been socially ostracized and that he's dealing with that. It never feels like that. It feels like he's, you know, he's this really cool kid. It feels like he's been Spider-Man for like 20 years and knows all the shit he knows how to make all the quips. He's, you know, always gets out okay. And he's cool fucking Peter Parker Spider-Man. Instead of being like this scared teenager who's dealing with all this grief and all this responsibility. Doesn't quite know how to deal with it and constantly disappoints people in his life. And doesn't know how to reconcile that. He's a skateboarding like guy. Yeah, like God's hipster sake. dude. Like, yeah. And I can't stress enough how important that is. Then how much you immediately drop the ball and just make me roll my eyes at... That he makes it on time. He never. I stress again. The dude would be late to his own fucking funeral if he could. Like he's always late to everything. Especially when he's out doing Spider-Man shit. Here let's. You know what? You talked about the polar opposite things with Spider-Man Exactly. 2. The first scene of Spider-Man 2 is his being late for the pizza and getting fired. Exactly. It's the first scene. He's always late. Because again... Because this is a critical part of Peter Parker and Spider-Man as a character. Is he has a, a trait that the comics refer to as the old Parker luck. And it's because everything goes wrong for him all the time. Sometimes it's not his fault. A lot of time it is. And that's... And there. That segues into what is the biggest thing this movie gets wrong. Just from basically... It's, it's also a storytelling perspective. But it's also something that for Spider-Man is one of his most critical differentiators from other superheroes. Is that Spider-Man is a character as a superhero who makes mistakes and has to learn from them. And this is something that I, like, was been thinking about the most because this is, like, after I got out of the movie and I really started thinking about it as a Spider-Man movie and deconstructing it and realizing how awful it is. And then I went and reread Amazing Final Fantasy XV, which is the original, that's where Spider-Man comes from, is from that anthology series that he was in so popular he got his own book. 
that original origin story is really, really, really well done. Like, if you just, it's a little bit dated, but if you look at it and try to look at it as sort of like a folktale, because again, it, it was not created for Spider Man to be a serialized character. It, it only became that way because he was so popular. So it's an original standalone story, and that's all it is. And, to, and what it is is that Peter Parker is a socially ostracized young teenager in high school who's being bullied. He's into science, and everyone's bullying him except for his uncle and aunt who are there for him there's no mention of his parents at all in the entire fucking issue and and that's the setup and so you take that relatable character and then you show him getting access to these powers but then he doesn't understand how to use the power so what he uses the power for is to get a power trip to exploit them for money to for his own personal gain and use them selfishly because he's never had power and he doesn't know how to do it and the fact that he's been abused for so much of his life by his peers means that he's obviously going to act out about it and then he takes that, and then eventually he gets screwed over and not understanding how to deal with that and having all this power trip, he then makes a critical, tragic mistake of letting that that robber go. Then that robber eventually robs the Parker household, shoots Uncle Ben. Peter goes there, discovers Ben has been shot, chases down the, the, the person who did it, and then when he gets there, he discovers that the result of his tragic mistake was that the guy he let go is the one who killed Uncle Ben, and it is his fault. It is Peter's fault, the fact that he failed to understand that great power come, with great power comes responsibility, that he failed to understand how to use his power in a responsible and good fashion, that that's what causes his uncle to die, and that is his mistake, and he has to learn from it. So at the end of the story, and this is something that I actually like better about the original origin that is not usually replicated, is that nobody tells Peter that with great power comes responsibility, great responsibility. Uncle Ben never says that. That is in the last panel, that is the last narrative caption, ends with, he walks in this lone solitary figure, walks into the darkness and contemplates the fact that with great power comes great responsibility. And Peter has to learn from his mistake and comes to that conclusion at the end. It is a classic fable-style construction to deliver, to deliver a moral at the end of the story. And then that then comes to define Peter for his life that he is the that no other superhero has that superman his like krypton did not blow up because superman fucked up batman's parents did not get killed because bruce wayne fucked up uncle ben died because peter parker fucked the fuck up and he has to do something about it now that is what the character is and then he continues to do that. He continues to make mistakes. He continues to make mistakes in how he handles villains. He continues to make mistakes in how he handles his personal life. He continues to make mistakes and he has to continue to learn from him. And that's what to me makes him the best superhero is that he has that aspect. It makes him relatable. It makes his stories dynamic and interesting. It makes his character develop. Peter Parker is one of the very few superhero characters who has aged over the course of the comics. And he, you know, he has gone through so much because he ages with the reader. He, he deals with issues in high school. He deals with issues in college. He deals with issues with relationships and getting married. He deals with those issues as he ages and develops as a character because that's built into him. And it's an aspect that other superheroes don't have because they're completely static. Because Superman doesn't make mistakes. Because Batman doesn't make mistakes because they are archetypal characters. Spider-Man makes fucking mistakes so he's a human he is a human in this movie spider-man is not allowed to make mistakes 
Peter Parker makes no mistakes in this movie. All the bad shit that happens in this movie is not his fault. His parents abandoned him. It's he never grieves of like it's like obsessed with Uncle Ben. He never it like takes on the fact that Uncle Ben's death is his responsibility. He's angst he's angsting about the fact that his parents abandoned him when he was a ch- child, which has obviously has nothing to do with Peter Parker making any sort of mistake. And I think one of the you know he he's not late for anything. And then the biggest one, the biggest one they fuck up with is that Gwen Stacy's death is not his fault. It's not his fault at all. In the comics. The fact that Peter's in a relationship with her, and the fact that Norman Osborn knows Peter is Spider-Man, that's what puts Gwen Stacy in danger. That's what puts her at risk. It is Spider-Man's mistake that he makes, and Spider-Man makes another mistake in how he catches Gwen, eventually kills her. And he does figure that out and learn from that, and in future stories when something similar happens, he knows he can't do that anymore because he lost the person he loves the most because he made a dumb mistake in trying to catch her. So he always makes mistakes in the comics, and he never does in the movie. And where you see that is... The, well, the, one of the biggest ones is the scene on the bridge. He's at the top of the bridge with Gwen, and Gwen's going to go to Oxford, and she and Peter says, "I will just follow you. I will." These, you know, he gets to be perfect boyfriend man because he just gets to say, "I will follow you anywhere for the rest of my life because I love you. I love you." They have crime in Oxford, right? So I can still be Spider-Man there, and I can be with you, and everything can be perfect. And he just gets to say that. He gets to have this moment where. He, he can be perfect boyfriend man. He doesn't, it doesn't have to be this whole angsty, like, I can't be with you because being with you is dangerous. He doesn't have to have that issue anymore. He can just say, I'm going to be with you forever and all this stuff. But because they killed Gwen Stacy, he doesn't have to follow through on any of that. So well, he can be perfect boyfriend, but he doesn't have to deal with the consequences. Because what would happen if he did go to Oxford? That would mean he would abandon Aunt May. And Aunt May would be completely alone. Because again, Uncle Ben died a year ago and Aunt May is like desperately trying to figure out ways to make money so Peter would just go off leave Aunt May leave all of the other presumably Peter has had friends in his life you know but not in these movies but he does he has he has other responsibilities and then if you're off in fucking Oxford like do you really think that they have the same level of crime in Oxford that they do in fucking New York City no Oxford also isn't his town That he is responsible exactly. for Exactly And you know what else Oxford doesn't have It doesn't have this big fucking tower That keeps on churning out Supervillains every other day Like everything in these movies Is all Oscorp's fault If you're in Oxford Guess what happens When Oscorp makes The next giant lizard man Fucking Spider-Man's Not there to deal with it So that would be So that would actually Have been a good If they had actually Ended the movie With Gwen Stacy living and then Peter Parker moving to Oxford. And again, he can't attend Oxford because he doesn't get the scholarship. He doesn't have the money to. So he would just be moving to England to live there, to just be with his girlfriend and dedicate his life to Gwen Stacy. And then the next movie could show that's a stupid fucking thing to do. That would be a huge mistake. You can't... That is not a relationship. You can't do that. Their relationship wouldn't work because Peter would become resentful of her. And then Peter would realize that he's abandoned his responsibilities and realize how important those responsibilities and have to go back to New York and learn something from him being a fucking idiot. But no, because this movie kills off Gwen Stacy, he doesn't have to learn from that. He doesn't have to learn from the fact that this was stupid. That him saying that, that him saying that he's going to do that is stupid, but he doesn't have to deal with the consequences of his actions. He just gets to be the perfect boyfriend, but since she dies, he doesn't have to deal with the issues of being a perfect boyfriend. Well, and the way she dies also takes culpability exactly. off of him. Yeah, because it's, it's her, it's my choice. Yes, yeah, that line, that is one of the stupidest lines in the movie, because she runs into the fight with Electro and says, this is my choice, Peter. It's not your choice. So when she dies, one, 
it's just total fucking pure coincidence anyways that Green Goblin goes down there and Gwen happens to be right there and Spider-Man's right there and he figures it out and then takes Gwen. So it's not like, oh, Harry knows that Peter is Spider-Man. He knows that he loves Gwen Stacy. So the one way to get at him is to get Gwen Stacy, which would prove Captain Stacy right. The weird thing about this movie is that Captain Stacy's like dying the prophecy of like, you are too dangerous for her, which obviously sets up Gwen dying. Gwen dying has nothing to do with that. It's a pure coincidence. Like, yes, if she wasn't in the relationship with Peter, she wouldn't really be there. But, like, it's so ancillary. It's not, like, directly because she's in a relationship with him that she is in danger. It's just, like, she happens to be there when when Green Goblin arrives. And Peter keeps telling her to leave, and since she doesn't, it's not his fault. Exactly. Peter's like, get the fuck out of here. And she's like, no, this is my choice. So they just turn Gwen Stacy into this suicidal idiot. It's like, what are you doing running into the middle of, like, fucking the dude who's shooting lightning from his hands? You have no superpowers. You, like, sure, like, because of the script, you have the ability to help in this situation. But logically speaking, she shouldn't. Logically speaking, she should have no idea how that power facility works. They have one line where she says, I looked at the schematics. It's like, well, that's fucking fantastic. That's great. You looked at the schematics. So clearly you, biologist lady, who who was in high school, knows how to fucking run this state-of-the-art brand-new power plant facility that, unlike any other power plant facility on the entire planet that was designed by Max Dillon, so it's brand-fucking-new, that is supposed to be run by a group of trained professionals, you, Gwen Stacy, biologist high school lady, you know how to run this facility and press the big fucking red button that saves the day. That makes no sense. That's just there for plot reasons. So she's not useful in that fight for any sufficiently explained reason. The plot just says she is. So that's fucking stupid. And so since she says, this is my choice, I'm going to be here of my own will. And this has nothing to do with you, Peter Parker, as Spider-Man. That means when she dies, it isn't his fault. It's not his responsibility. And he didn't make a mistake. Yep. Yeah. And all he has to do is be sad. Then he has to learn, oh, all I have to do is feel hope? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's like you then take, you waste everything by having him. You don't show his process of why. I mean, this is another thing. It's like you don't actually know why he stops being Spider-Man. Is it because he's sad? Is it because he thinks Gwen dying is his fault? Like, is does he just not want to be Spider-Man anymore? You have no idea. Because all it does is show... What is immediately, like, in a much better movie could be a really touching montage of him standing at the grave and it moving through the seasons. In a much better movie, that could be a touching scene. But here, it's just fucking maddening. Because it's like, well, I don't know what he's doing. Like, he hasn't been Spider-Man for a year. Why? Fucking what? Like, what is he thinking? What is he going through? You have to show that somehow. Or else you don't have no idea what he's thinking. Especially because since he started being Spider-Man because another person died, this seems inconsistent. It's how he coped with the last death. Exactly. (laughs) So it's just, it makes no sense. And then you just have him be Spider-Man again at the end of the movie without him having to have gone through any character arc. Like, I can't stress enough how stupid it is that Spider-Man's entire character arc is stuffed into the last five minutes of the fucking movie. That makes no goddamn sense. The other thing also is that, you know, he has the whole thing he hears about hope and happiness and blah, blah, blah. But he also only comes back because they absolutely need him. It's like he's yeah, forced. Yeah, Rhino is Rhino comes coming out. the fuck out of nowhere. And so it's like, well, I have no other choice. It's not... It does, he doesn't go out and stop a petty theft. Yeah. That would be more meaningful in a lot of ways. You know? Yeah. Just... So there's all that. So, yeah. So they just get the core 
the absolute core of the Spider-Man character exactly wrong. And, and this is one of the things that's pissed me off a lot. Because I've actually seen, a, not a lot, but I've seen some people online say that, oh, I'm a Spider-Man fan, and this is the kind of Spider-Man I wanted to I'm talk about for. this. Yes. I, let, me, let me put this up, because I have a series of questions I wanted to ask at the end of this. All right. Let's jump to this. Okay. And, and you're not... This is not a small contingent, by the way. You're not seeing... This is... I'm seeing this all over the place, too. Because okay, yeah. I've, of... I've only read a couple of, like, reviews and articles and glanced at the comments, so I have not been looking for I've it. seen a lot on Twitter. I've seen... There's a large... A lot of critics have written about fans on their comments and stuff. There's a large fan contingent that thinks this is the best Spider-Man movie yeah, that, because yeah. the, he is more Spider-Man here than in any other film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, Who it's, the fuck it's, are an the... Argument, it's an argument that was made about the first Amazing Spider-Man as well that made no sense to me, but it definitely makes no sense here. So here, here's what it is. Here's what it is. Is that there are two things that... Or there's, there's really one thing that people become fixated on with Spider-Man. And it's especially people who don't did not read the original stories. It's, it's like more later fans that have read a lot of the stuff that's not as good as the original stuff. Like the 80s and 90s Spider-Man. That they fixate most prominently on Spider-Man making jokes. It's the fucking quips. I, yeah. It's the fucking quips. It's that. And then the other thing that they often come up with... Which is also stupid is that Spider-Man is supposed to be super smart and he's a scientist, so you know he, that was not a prominent element of the Raimi films, even though he, you know, he, in Spider-Man Two he's fucking working with Doctor Octopus and all that nonsense. But and the fact that he makes his own mechanical web shooters is apparently such a hugely critical part of the character that if it's not there. It's not Spider-Man. Even though movie. it makes no difference in either of these movies. It doesn't. Every single scene. Because is... he doesn't even fucking figure out how to defeat Electro with his brain. Gwen Stacy does. So even that's not in here. But anyways, that's the two things. That is the two things. Every time I've seen it, this has been brought up for the original Amazing Spider-Man 1. And every time I've seen this addressed here is those two things. It's the scientist thing and it's the quip thing. Let's... I want to talk about the quips because okay. I yeah. think the quips I was going are, to talk about the quips but yes the quips were awful and awkward yeah they're the not movie. good quips in the, in, the f- f- yeah, in, in both of these movies no. in the first movie it makes him seem like a fucking sociopath it does in the first movie he's just like that scene where he has the car thief it looks yeah. like he's a fucking serial rapist like, yeah, it is fucking creepy yeah it's creepy and then also the- how the fuck did he get in the backseat of that car when I re-watched watched, re-watched the movie I was like has he just been sitting in there waiting for someone to steal this car I never noticed that the first time he's, he's just I, I assume that's it but no in in this movie, the quips are of slightly higher quality. Sure, not really, but they're like yeah. they're they, they're slightly less creepy. There's a couple but... of like okay ones in the first scene where he's fighting Paul Giamatti. Uh, like... The only good one to me is the one at the end about in in uh, in reference to actual rhinos everywhere. That's okay. Okay, sure. But yeah. in any way, there. The, but the problem is, I don't see how those two halves of his personality come together. I don't yeah. understand for a second how. Peter Parker goes from being Andrew Garfield out of the mask, how we see him, to he puts on the mask and suddenly he's making quips. That's not his personality. That's not... It doesn't... Come, yeah. And he makes it in situations that, like, shut up and deal with it. Like, if you actually read, you know, a Spider-Man comic or watch a good Spider-Man yeah. TV show, when the shit actually goes down, he yeah. shuts up. Do you want to know how many quips Spider-Man makes in the Death of Gwen Stacy story arc? None! He's not going there It's like... Then, what did you raid a Halloween store today, Gobby? Ha-ha! He's not saying that. He's saying, you motherfucker! You killed the woman I love. I'm going to beat the ever-living shit out of you. That's basically what he's saying. He's not, like, being all fun, quippy Spider-Man. He's, like, 
oh my god, the worst thing has ever happened in my entire life has just happened, and I'm going to fucking kill you, motherfucker. Alright, and so, and here's the thing. So the Sam Raimi movies, people say there's no quips. There there's are. there's a lot, but they're really natural and Yeah, and they're subdued, and it's, you know, it's... It's what, yeah. it's what the Tobey Maguire Peter Parker that we know and love would say. Yeah. Because he's kind of a laid-back guy, he has this dry sense of irony, and when he's Spider-Man, he does that too, but he cuts it out when he needs to. Here it's like... That first scene in this movie is so over the top to me of destruction True. and stuff, and that Spider-Man would be making his quips during that. It's like, no, you have bigger things to worry about. Dude. Especially because also these movies set up a much more serious tone than the yes. Sam Raimi ones did. That's like in the Sam Raimi ones, when Spider-Man says something unbelievably cheesy and dumb, like "You're the one who's out, Gobby, out of your mind." That's that's a line from the original Spider-Man movie. It's It's a great line. Yeah, it's an awful line, but it's an amazing line. Because it fits perfectly with the tone of those movies, because they're so campy and cheesy. These ones, it's like, especially the first Amazing Spider-Man, it's so dark and grimy of a fucking movie. It's like, when he's making jokes, it's just... Weird. It's terrifying. Like, he seems legitimately fucking scary. And more important than anything else, the quips thing and the web shooters and all that, those are the most superficial... Exactly. Spider-Man That's what I was going to say. That It's the, the most superficial element of Spider-Man. And people who claim that they are Spider-Man fans, and that's what you get from it, all you're getting from it is the superficial, like, feel-good superhero aspect of Spider-Man, which is funny quips, fun, like, cool action scenes, and that's it, and that's all you're getting. And you have no... Understanding, no critical understanding, no deconstruction of what actually makes Spider-Man work underneath that. Like, the core of the character, what makes the stories compelling. What, like, the thing that allows me to go back and read comic books from, like, 1963 and still be like, these hold up. Like, almost no comics from then hold up at all. And these are fucking amazing still like a lot of these stories are really well done is because they have a really strong really powerful core from people who knew how to tell stories who knew how to tell interesting stories and knew how like the moral fiber underneath it and knew what superheroes were missing which is this tragic human element to it and that's what is in that original core of the Spider-Man character and that is what is completely lacking from these movies it reminds me of like uh, Dragon Ball Z fans usually dub fans who think that the show is just yeah. yelling and yeah, posturing it's just like Kamehameha yeah but it's so much more than that and I love that's like so far down on the list of things I love about Dragon Ball yeah it's and great characters like the humor in Dragon Ball yeah. is like a huge part of the series that people they're really ignore. good stories that yeah. kind of have a lot of twists and turns but yeah, and it's so it's just I don't, and this it really if that's what you're getting out of Amazing Spider-Man two, and you're just it gets some superficial things in there, not even done well, they're just in there, and so you're like, okay, I like it. Makes it. you happy? Like normally I would be like, hey man, whatever makes you happy, fine. No, you're like, an idiot. If yeah, you, you, whatever. Stop calling yourself a Spider-Man fan because fuck you, just fuck you people. Because I, I can't deal with it that you can accept this fucking filth, this awful awful adaptation ruination of this character and accept it as a good story a good Spider-Man story like fuck you it's like saying Transformers is great because I like beautiful women and Megan Fox is in it yeah okay well yes they fulfilled your heterosexual desires by having Megan Fox in a tank top but they didn't give you a story or characters or anything else so you're just an idiot yeah or it's like I'm a huge Transformers fan and I really like the new Transformers movie Solely because Peter Cullen is voicing Optimus Prime, and that's like that is like the one thing you need or something. You but know? you know, we're seeing this a lot. Like, there's a lot of people who are saying, "Oh, I'm excited for Transformers: Age of Extinction because it's got the Dinobots, and I like the Dinobots." 
They're just like, what? You know, I like I like Optimus Prime. I hate those movies. I love Optimus Prime. He's an awesome character. Those are still horrendous movies. Yes. It's just, and it's this, and it's the problem that allows movies like Amazing Spider-Man 2 to perpetuate. Is that yeah, there like are the, fan these, bo- these old adaptations of old material that people are like dedicated fans of. Well, no, it's that there's this fanboy mentality that as yeah. long as you give me just a little bit of fan service for the things I like and have nostalgia for, fuck it, I'll, I'll forgive anything. Right. At all. Anything. And we see, this, we see this more and more, and it's just, it allows Hollywood to dumb it down, you yeah. know? Thank God for Marvel Studios and and knowing, you know, we could have done so much lower with all of our movies, with Iron Man and Cap and everyone, but we tried to elevate it and give everybody something good and thoughtful and meaty. And whether you like those movies or not, they are attempting to aim for a higher common denominator. Yeah. This is not. This is offensive on the other level of just, it's saying, what is the basest fanboy desire we can fulfill? Let's just throw that in there. We're not going to worry about anything else. And then we're done. And, you know, we're going to rip off everyone. This movie made $90 million. They should pay every cent of that back. This is a fucking ripoff. Yeah. God. Okay. That's one of my questions. Sure. Let's go on to some other ones. Okay. Um, Okay. We talked about this a little bit. But this is is different than people who like this movie. Because there are people who genuinely like it. I don't get that. Most people have been down on this movie. It's been getting bad reviews. But... The reaction is negative, but with this kind of like mediocre angle, like a lot of C grades, a lot of B minuses. Yeah. Where's that coming from? And why am I not hearing more about how the dialogue is bad and there's no story and all this other stuff? There's a lot of just letting it slide and just saying it's mediocre. Is it. I don't get where that's coming from. I don't either. Like, it's. Because for me, again, like ignoring even everything else. The story itself is so poorly constructed that I don't understand how anyone can give this movie anything resembling a passing grade. Like, it literally, it's an F. Like, it's an F. By definition for me, it is a failure. It has failed in what it's trying to do. It's not like it kind of misses the mark, or it's like, well, it's flawed, but there's some good stuff in it. It's like, no, the entire movie falls apart completely from, like, minute one. Yeah, no, it's, an F, it's the definition of an F to me. Yeah. Uh, and I don't give letter grades anymore, but I thought about slapping an F on this one just for fun, because that's what it this is. This has just been the review is a big red F. Big red F, yes. God. Big red U, also. Yeah, so I don't get that. We've covered a lot of these other ones. Um, all right. Big big question here for me, because I okay. started in one place, and I've migrated to another. Where does this rank on the list of worst superhero movies for you? Because for me, I can answer now. I... I the way I started my review um, that I published the day the movie came out, or the day after, I think, yeah. was that I said, I've probably seen worse superhero movies, but none that made me this uncomfortable and angry. And the more I've thought about it, I actually don't think I've seen a worse superhero movie I don't movie think than so this. either. I think this is the worst. Because I'm, I, I run through the ones I hate. Like uh, the Joel Schumacher Batman movies. Yeah, Batman and Robin. The Fantastic Four movies. Daredevil. Ang Lee's Hulk. Those are all better movies than this. Yeah. Easily. Yeah, without a doubt. Like, they're... They're, they're movies like they're, they have yeah. a story like this they're is, not good movies but they're movies I'm at a point where definitely this is the worst superhero movie I've yeah, ever seen I, I would probably agree with that like I would need to, to like to make that definitive I would have to like rewatch Batman and Robin those movies because I haven't seen them in forever but Batman and Robin is also one where it's so bad it's good it's kind sure, of fun to it watch. It has that element to it, that's for sure. This goes beyond that, you know. And yeah, there's nothing, there's no joy to be no. extracted from this movie. It's just, like I said, it's boring. Yeah. That siren is going to arrest Mark Webb. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> just, just kidding. Just arrest everyone involved in this movie. 
Oh, God. But no. So, and here's the funny thing. If I were to take every superhero film I have ever seen and rank them out worst to best, we would start with Amazing Spider-Man 2, and we would end and with, with Spider- Real Spider-Man yeah, 2. Real Spider-Man 2. How, how crazy is that? That this one franchise can be the best and worst of an entire genre. It's depressing, isn't it? It's, it's very depressing. Like you asked me this question last night when we were texting about this. Yeah. What did Spider-Man fans do yeah. to deserve how, this? I mean, it was something that, like, I was seriously just grappling with this last night. It was like, how did this happen? Like, how did this movie get made? How did it get made like this? It's like, did I do something wrong? Because we were, t- we were texting back and forth to each other, like, all this stuff of, like, what this movie is worse than. And I said, this is the worst thing. And this is true. This is the worst thing to happen to Spider-Man since One More Day. And for those who don't know, One More Day is a storyline that made me stop reading Spider-Man comics. I still, to this day, have not read a single issue of Spider-Man that takes place after this story. I think it was in 2006. It was right after the Marvel Civil War where they reset Spider-Man's continuity because they had done some stuff where Spider-Man had been married to Mary Jane for a very, very long time at that point. And I guess Joe Quesada and like the, the editors at Marvel thought... Oh, like Spider-Man's too stale. I want to let's bring Spider-Man back to basics. They can't be married because that's not interesting. Even though there were tons of really, really interesting stories that had Spider-Man married to Mary Jane and used that as part of the story. But whatever, they, they thought that and Spider-Man had also Peter Parker's secret identity had been revealed over the course of Civil War, and then Aunt May had been shot. So what happened was in one more day, Peter Parker sold and Peter Parker and Mary Jane. They both made the choice. They sold their marriage. To Mephisto, the devil, to save Aunt May's life, and part of the consequence of that was that Spider-Man then never had revealed his secret identity. So they reset, like, 20 years, over 20 years, of Spider-Man comics and continuity and storylines to get Spider-Man to a spot where now he can have his dumb, like, love triangles and stuff and just rehash the stories that we had told in the fucking 70s and that is it's the probably the worst comic book story I've ever seen it was the utter ruination of that character for me that like I'm now because this movie is so bad I'm thinking about like I'm just going to fucking go back in and start pick up Spider-Man where I left off because this movie's there's like one more day was bad but this movie is so fucking terrible I just need I want to know like I just need to I can move on now this movie's so bad I can move on from one more day and this fucking movie is the worst thing to happen to Spider-Man since One More Day. And for me, that is saying... That's saying a fucking lot. So One More Day is really bad. I... Yeah. So what do we do? So my theory was that there's a Spider-Man fan somewhere who is a serial killer. Yeah. And that's this is Karma's answer. But Karma is going overboard. Yeah. It's... You know? <laughs> oh, God. Alright. Oh. Biggest question. Okay. What do we do... <laughs> About any future sequels, spinoffs, because they are in on this Spider-Man continuity all in for the next five, six, ten years. That just made me remember something else that made me so fucking angry. Is they go down to that secret basement in Oscorp, and in the background are Doctor Octopus's tentacles. It's like Vulture's wings, and it just—I had a revelation of this, like. That means because because what they then do because Rhino suit is down there too so they stuff Paul Giamatti into the Rhino suit which fair enough that is that is Rhino's origin is that he gets hired and like put into the Rhino suit. I want to say I love that sentence. They stuff Paul Giamatti into a Rhino suit. <laughs> yeah, but what that means the fact that Doc Ock's tentacles and Vulture's wingsuit it's also like I don't know why Doc Ock's tentacles are so 
top secret that it's like you they have to be stuffed into this basement. I don't know what that or the flight suit have to do with curing Norman Osborn's illness because I thought that's like everything Norman Osborn was doing was trying to figure out how to survive this genetic disease he had. I don't know what I don't know how octopus arms helps you there. But what that means is that when they do Sinister Six and they have Vulture and they have Doc Ock, it means that Otto Octavius did not design his tentacles, unless like they tried to do that in some weird way, and it doesn't. And it means that Adrian Toomes did not design the flight suit. If like Oscorp developed them and just has them in the basement, it's like you're the, other than other than that. Like what you have to do is you have to show that these characters, both of them worked for Oscorp, designed those things, and then those things were taken away and locked away in the basement and never used for anything, which is a dumb thing. So it's like. You've now already ruined your setup because you've just taken away a huge part of, like, the power and agency of two of the best Spider-Man villains. One of, if not, like, probably the best Spider-Man villain, Doc Ock. Like, I don't want to see a Doc Ock story where someone else made the tentacles and just, like, put him in it. Like, that's not... That's not Doc Ock. That's it means not that cool. For, that saps that character's power. It means that for the foreseeable future, every villain in a Sony Spider-Man movie will just be, oh, you don't like Spider-Man? Here, we're Oscorp. Here, yeah, take this. Yeah, we're just everyone out of Oscorp. Which is something that, like, a lot of, like, Ultimate Spider-Man does it a bit, Spectacular Spider-Man does it a bit, but it's not everybody. Like, a lot of stuff comes back to Oscorp, but it's not absolutely everybody the way that these movies are kind of setting it up as. Yeah, I, I mean... Why doesn't Peter just go fucking, like, bomb Oscorp Tower in this series? Because it, if he did that, everything would be fine. He yeah. wouldn't have to be Spider-Man anymore. That's the only source of evil in the universe in these movies is Oscorp. Yeah. Just get a file on them and give it to the police. You I know? wonder what Venom is going to be in these movies. Because they're making the fucking Venom spinoff. I don't... You know what that means? Is if they're making Venom spinoff, that must mean that Amazing Spider-Man 3 is going to be Black Suit, right? Like, it has to. How else do you have... How do you do a Venom spinoff if Spider-Man never gets into the symbiote suit? I just... I don't care. I mean, where my answer to this question of what do we do with yeah. future sequel spinoffs, I'm out. I'm done. I don't care. They've they've salted the earth for me. I, I sure. love this Yeah, I mean, it's... it's they've, I don't know what they could do with the, like, the like salvage... You like, this complete waste of a film. You cannot come back from a movie this bad. I just... It's impossible, I you know? Agree, yeah. I've... I've... You know, there are... You know, X-Men certainly has come up and down from bad movies, but they've never had anything this low, so they have the chance to come back. Yeah. There's nothing you can do after Amazing Spider-Man 2. After killing one of your main characters like this, after... Yeah, I mean, shooting... even then, like, with X-Men, like, what did they have to do after X3? Like, they basically rebooted it with X-Men First Class, you know? Yeah. Whatever. I, it's just... It's all awful. It's... There's... This is... The Earth has been... Forever salted at Sony for Spider-Man. There's nothing they can do with it. One day the rights will revert to Marvel Studios. Like another, like the second Spider-Man reboot in like ten years. But whatever. I mean, then they're going to keep pumping these out as long as they can. Like, and I know Andrew Garfield is is signed on that he has to do Amazing Spider-Man three. He has to get the fuck out of this movie. He has to. He's... He has to get like. Luckily, Emma Stone. Is her out. character's dead, so like maybe they could bring her back to like glare menacingly at Peter, like Dennis Leary did through like two scenes in this movie. But other than that, like she's basically good. She can get the fuck away from these movies. Andrew Garfield, dude, like I respect you, man. I know you're a Spider-Man fan. You got to get away from these movies. You got to get out of this. This is no good for you. Fake a sex scandal in the papers or something. <laughs> exactly. Just, that would be better than being in these at this point. This is toxic. It's so, anyone, awesome. we're getting a Spider-Man 3 and 4. We're getting a Spectacular 6. Or Sinister, Sinister 6. six. <laughs> we're getting a... Whatever. It's all bullshit. Sure. We're getting a Venom movie all before 2020. Yeah. They're trying to do these. And it's just like... Just stop it. It's awful. And, you know, the one sign of hope 
is that Amazing Spider-Man 2 is trailing significantly behind every yeah, other Spider-Man movie. Yeah, it's the worst, movie. yeah, it's the worst, financially the worst Spider-Man movie so far. And it's critically. Yeah. The worst, I mean, yeah, like, legitimately, it's not just us that hates this movie. Like, it's critically by far the worst Spider-Man movie. Like, Spider-Man 3 did not even have a negative tomato score on yeah. Rotten Tomatoes. This one does. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's... And, and it's not like it's doing so little money that they're not going to make more. It's still big. It's going to top out at close to a billion. But it's like... But for a Spider-Man movie, yes. it's not doing what they need I to don't do. know. I just... They, they, I, I don't... I don't plan on seeing more after this. I don't I plan on to. putting like, us I, through this. I just... I... I have to... Like, I okay. have to know what they do. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm legitimately fucking... I have no idea what the next movie is going to be. Like... I have no idea. How I know what going it's going to be, do. Sean. It's going to be awful. Yeah, but it's like if, but if they do black suit Spider Man, like what are they going to do? Like they haven't set it up. Like they haven't. They set because they used like this whole movie to set up Sinister Six. And it's like, but what about the next Amazing Spider Man movie? Like you didn't set up a sequel. At least the like the first movie like had some mentions of Norman Osborn and stuff that was like. Okay, like you've got a Green Goblin thing that you can do in the next movie. They went with Electro. I don't know why, but they did. I mean, they fucked up the, the what they had set up in the first movie. But it's like, there's nothing. Like, wh- who's going to be the villain in Amazing Spider-Man Three? Is he just going to do Green Goblin? Like, actually try to do Green Goblin? Because that's another thing that we didn't talk about a whole lot. Was that, hey, like, you have Green Goblin in this movie, but he's only Green Goblin for like ten minutes. So you and he's nothing resembling the character. You know, give him an opportunity. To be anything resembling the character, so you just completely wasted, like just threw him away. It was like, I, I mean, you know, fucking Spider-Man three developed and used Venom more than this movie used Green Goblin. How is it even possible? Well, that's one of the other things I want to talk about is that Spider-Man three has this very weird reputation to me, where I think it's a mediocre movie. It's got yeah. a lot of problems, but if you legitimately think that's a bad movie, you haven't seen bad movies. Oh god, I never want to hear anyone talk about the dance scene in Spider-Man Three again. Now that this movie's come out, shut the fuck up. Like, who cares? At least that scene. You know what the Spider-Man Three dance scene did? As goofy as it fucking was, it fucking had a place in the plot. It had contributed to the conflict. It was a turning point in that movie. It had a place. It was part of that movie's critical plot and spying and it's, theme. Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man Two doesn't even have that for a movie to for a scene to be too cheesy for you to accept for that to happen in the first place. It's, Amazing Spider-Man Two is so bad it can't even have a scene as dumb as the dance scene in Spider-Man Three. Yep, and uh, it's yeah, yeah. Spider-Man Three is a masterpiece compared to this. Spider-Man really Three is, is just fine. A much better Spider-Man movie than this. Oh yeah, well, on every level. Spider-Man 3, you know, has some wonky stuff, but it doesn't ruin the character, it doesn't misinterpret the character, it doesn't... It does it pretty, like, other than, you know, the, its use of Venom is really poor, but it does a pretty good job of the black suit story, legitimately. Like, it does, I think it it's does underdeveloped, it, but... Yeah, you know. but it does a pretty, like, like I said, it does a pretty, I'm not saying it's doing a great job, it does a pretty good job of it, it has, like, a lot of the major beats. Yeah. Like, it's a, it is a thousand times a better adaptation of that storyline than this is of Death of Gwen Stacy. Like, this one's not even... Doesn't even have like almost anything in it other than when Stacy died. It would be like if the black suit Spider Man story, all it was is Spider Man gets a black suit. It's like that's as much of an adaptation yeah. of that storyline as this does as Death of Gwen Stacy. It doesn't deal with the addiction subplot. It doesn't do like any of like the classic church scene. It's just like, nope, it's just. No. It's just a black suit. And, uh. 
And again, yeah, I mean, the Green Goblin here is vastly less developed than uh, Venom is in yeah, yeah. Spider-Man 3. Venom at least has, like, clearly defined powers. There's a big fight yeah, with like, him. Like There's... an understandable motivation, more or less. Yeah. yeah, it's a stupid motivation, but it's understandable. Yeah, it makes more sense than Harry's. It's not like, it's not like Eddie Brock becomes Venom in Spider-Man 3 because he only has 30 years left to live. <laughs> All right, I think we've we've kind of hit the limit here. Uh, yeah. Do you have any last thoughts? Anything uh, you'd like to say? Yeah, this is one of the worst movies we've ever talked about. I hate it. It's it's the it's the worst movie we've talked about on the podcast, other than after last season. But again, that's not even fair. Like no. that's not you know that's like you know making Spider Man Two is a better movie than The Room, like technically speaking. But it's like that's not. I don't know about that. That's not saying anything, you know. It really is a failure, as you said, on yeah. every level. But I mean, so is The Room. Like, yeah. like, oh, sure, yeah. but. It's just I yeah. I don't know I don't know what to do about this movie making money. I don't know what to do about people kind of. I don't know what to do about these people calling themselves Spider Man fans. Like I don't. someone needs to lay down some fucking vigilante justice. <laughs> like someone not, needs to web some fuckers up to some fucking light poles, you know what I'm saying? We are not advocating violence. But, you know, if, if Spider Man just at least stop them. calling yourself Spider Man fans. If you enjoy the movie, whatever, but stop calling yourself Spider Man fans because you're not. You're not. If you just like bad movies, yeah. I, can, I can get that. Because this would be like heaven for you. If you like bad movies... Yeah, but not like bad movies because bad movies are funny, but like bad right. movies because they are... You're a masochist. train wrecks and just unbelievably boring. Yeah. Yeah. This movie's that. All right. Sean, next yeah. week. Next we get to talk about Godzilla. Oh, thank God. Which looks really good. Yeah, the review, the early reviews and stuff have been really good. I'm excited. I'm excited too. Here's my plan. This okay. is coming out on a Tuesday yes. night. Um, hopefully, you're going to see Godzilla as soon as you can, I assume. Yeah, I'll probably I'll probably end up seeing it on that Saturday. Okay. Then what I want to do is record that um, either Sunday or Monday, and, and it'll yeah. be out as soon as we can early in the week. I want to move the podcast. It was coming out on Fridays. This is coming out on Tuesday. I think Monday, Tuesday is going to be where it is for the foreseeable probably, future. Yeah, easy to do, yeah. Um, so that's probably where it's going to land. And uh, we've got Godzilla to talk about. The week after that is X-Men Days of Future Past. The early right. reviews came out for that this morning. It sounds good, too. Um, I'm excited for Thank both God. of those. I need, I need, I I need something, something to fix this, man. So, yeah. We're going to go do anything else but talk about this piece of shit movie anymore. Yeah. Um, fuck you, Amazing Spider-Man 2. Yeah, fuck that movie.